Hey, Tim. What's up, Tim? What's the deal with so many TV movies that have dark and depressing plots about nuclear weapons? Because between Special Bulletin, The War Game, Threads, The Day After, and so many more, it's getting harder to just sit in front of the television without having to take 30-minute breaks to go on the internet and look at kitten pictures. Tim, I think you're being super critical. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun, often nonsensical, and sometimes really dark and depressing way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. As always, you can listen to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, YouTube, wherever you have your podcasts, I'm not going to judge you, you can listen to ours. You can also check out our website, supercriticalpodcast.com, for a full list of episodes and the occasional bonus feature or two. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. And today, I am joined over Skype by Tim Collins, a PhD candidate at the Department of War Studies at King's College London, who is writing a thesis on British nuclear history. And you can find him on Twitter at WarAndCake. Tim, thanks very much for, for joining me today over Skype. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be on here and to talk about this film, even if it is the perhaps most depressing film <laughs> ever devised, uh, either in Britain or anywhere else. When you were an undergrad, you saw this movie in a, in a history of the bomb class. Yeah. And you watch this movie and you still study this stuff. <laughs> really impressed. Yeah. Just, I, was, I mean, I was warned, so I can't say it's not my own fault. Uh, yeah, I had a, I had a teacher, uh, Jerry DeGroot, who was very strong mm. on teaching us uh, not just the history but also about nuclear culture and as part of that he he got my undergrad class together and sat us down put a dvd in and pressed play and then he left the room <laughs> saying he never wanted to see this film twice <laughs> uh, the film was threads and by the time he came back into the room two hours later it's quite a long film we were all slumped catatonic kind of looking into the void. <laughs> uh, the film has always stuck with me, so I actually didn't re-watch it again until in preparation for this podcast. But I found when I sat down to watch it again, I'd pretty much remembered every detail, and I don't have a particularly great memory. Huh, There's something wow. about this film that is, I think, is quite indelible. Uh, even though I watched it 20 years after it was originally made, and without any particular fear of nuclear war, it's fairly unforgettable, I think. Uh, I'm sorry that I made you watch this again for the <laughs> podcast episode. Um, hopefully you can take another 20 years before you have to watch that again. Um, but So the movie we watched today, Threads, it is part documentary, part drama, and many parts dark horror. Uh, that tells the story of Jimmy and Ruth, two British teenagers that are in love with a surprise baby on the way. Basic setup for a romantic comedy. But all of a sudden, the United States and the Soviet Union decide to get into a little bit of an argument with nuclear weapons. Uh, the UK gets stuck somewhere in the middle there. And then Jimmy and Ruth's town of Sheffield, England, becomes ground zero for uh, nuclear war. Threads originally aired on September 23rd, 1984, on television. And as the tagline for the movie poster, I don't know why a television movie would need a poster, but <laughs> in, in the promotional materials it says, the closest you'll ever want to come to nuclear war. I would agree with that. Directed by Mick Jackson, who has a little bit of experience with nuclear movies. I guess a couple years before this, 
he was uh, commissioned to do a, a, a guide to Armageddon, which he did a lot of research about nuclear weapons and war and the what would the consequences be if nuclear weapons were used. And I guess he used a lot of that stuff for the movie Threads. So he's someone who has some experience with it and then ends up being commissioned by the BBC to write this movie or direct this movie. Yeah, I gotta say, I'm not really familiar with many of the people behind the film, even the cast, which I think is one of its its strengths. But the film itself, not just because it's a docudrama, it seems to be striving for authenticity throughout, barring maybe one or two little points. I think it achieves that very well. So this is a production team who actually knows their stuff and they don't seem to have any particular axes to grind. But they definitely did their homework. According, well, according to one of the articles that I read, the director, Mick Jackson, spent a year, quote, wondering the United States and the UK researching this and talking to scientists, psychologists, doctors, defense specialists, strategic experts to, quote, be up to speed on everything we know about nuclear war. He clearly did his research here. And uh, I guess the drama part of it was written by Barry Hines, who mm. is so not someone that I'm incredibly familiar with, but... It seems to be someone who is a very prolific writer, a very uh, writer who writes a lot on social causes. Having him compile all the facts and then put it on top of a, a human drama seems mm. to be one of the things that works well in this movie. So it's not just a dry documentary. We learn to love the characters and then we learn to watch them basically slowly degrade in, in the midst of <laughs> nuclear fallout and war and all that. The perfect, perfect combination, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. They... I think you need that human connection to kind of draw, to to make you sit and endure what these characters endure. To uh, despite everything, you kind of want them to survive, or not just to survive, but to recover in a way that we we know in advance yeah, is impossible. The tagline warns us. <laughs> the the promotional imagery that goes with the films. Uh, I think that because it's a TV movie, there aren't lots of posters or anything else, but there was one, I think was the cover of the Radio Times, which is a TV listings magazine in Britain. And it's just of a traffic warden with his face obscured in a white bloody bandage with, you can't even see his eyes, but you know, there's kind of this thousand yard stare behind it. Yeah, they, uh, they, they warned us. <laughs> I think because it is very well made and on a very small budget, um, you do keep watching despite everything else, even if, I mean, so I watched this obviously at home with the ability to pause the film. That was necessary. Um, <laughs> at some point, I just had to pause it and go outside and look at the sun and look at my vegetable garden and be reminded that things were still growing in the world. I don't know what the writer and director were like after all that research. I imagine they were pretty broken down, but I at least think... Uh, whatever personal price they paid, they they pulled off what they were seeking to achieve. So thinking about that, what the director's goals were, uh, I actually found a quote on this. He says, it seems to me that people weren't able to visualize the unthinkable, especially politicians. So I thought if I acted this out for them as a television drama, not as a spectacle or a disaster movie, that would give them a workable visual vocabulary for thinking about the unthinkable. The fact that you still remembered this movie after years and years of not watching it, uh, the fact that that stays with you, uh, and the fact that this became a, a major point um, of essentially of how you think about nuclear weapons within uh, the UK, it accomplished its goal. In the United States, I don't think we've talked about this movie a lot. We talk a lot about the day after, the sure. similar time period of when this movie came out. We talk a lot about that one because Reagan supposedly watched that movie and freak, was freaked out by it. Uh, but yeah. I don't, 
I think this one, I think the Reds does a much better job of, of handling these issues. As part of my reading behind this, allegedly Reagan also saw this as well. So at the same time, and also in the context of also becoming a grandfather and all of these things that historians debate contributed to his stepping back from the nuclear brink a little and dialing down the rhetoric of the evil empire and so forth. I think it is fascinating the capacity of especially films to humanize Mm -hmm. these situations in a way that pure uh, academic text or literature can't. I'm even reminded how in the um, 1950s uh, when uh, William Penny, who was kind of one of the chief scientists in Britain's nuclear program, wanted to describe to policymakers the effect of a nuclear bomb. He got them together in a room and he showed this by taking an image of, of central London, of Whitehall, and superimposing over that a mushroom cloud of, I think, a thermonuclear weapon Mm -hmm. to convey in a way that just reading statistics could not the scale of this weapon. And I think this film does that very well in terms of not just physical destruction, but its thesis of destruction to society itself. It's hard not to walk away from this film and just have in the back of their mind for kind of the rest of your life a sense of (laughs) how fragile actually is society and what would it take to make this break down and we would all stop cooperating and perhaps turn on each other. Um, I wonder how many people who watched this film ended up becoming fairly hardcore preppers, <laughs> uh, getting ready for societal collapse. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think a lot of that um, you see in the cast because of how strong the cast is. And it's a, it seems to be also very powerful because they didn't cast a lot of people that maybe a British audience would know. Supposedly there was some talk about uh, casting the entire cast of... Uh, soap opera that was there but then they ended up not doing that i think although some of them made it on there but a lot of them are the individual actors you may not actually know them similar like if you casted tom cruise in this movie you would not associate him as a regular everyday person exactly you you couldn't see him in that scenario but if you cast a bunch of unknowns you can attach your own experience and and situation to that but i think we can go through a little bit of the cast here uh we have ruth uh, Ruth and Jimmy are two teenagers at the beginning of the movie uh, who are, you know, necking in a car on the precariously, <laughs> precariously placed on top of a cliff, but maybe that's foreshadowing. Uh, Ruth is played by Karen Meager, uh, and I only mention her name because she was an active member of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in the United Kingdom. Uh, Clive Sutton, who is the character name for our, our overworked civil servant, <laughs> who spends most of the movie over on a, basically on a phone, trying to order supplies, govern the, 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 the government's plans for how to respond to a nuclear uh, attack with civil defense. But they spend a lot of time on the, in a phone, on the phone in a bunker. I think that's a really fascinating character for this movie that you don't see in a lot of other ones. And then there's a narrator, too, occasionally dispersed throughout the movie, who's voiced by Paul Vaughn, who was a journalist who presented the science show Horizon on the BBC for a couple of years. And he also, I thought this was funny, uh, provided narration for the British edition of a Kirby video game uh, for the Nintendo Wii. So that's great range. Very Absolutely. This movie, as you mentioned earlier, it, you know, it was made for not very much money and very quickly. Under $450,000 or £350,000 and in less than 17 days. That's very impressive for, I guess, principal photography for the Absolutely. film Absolutely. And given that... So it's a mix of repurposed archival footage of things like nuclear tests, but also some things they've obviously staged themselves. Obviously, 19, early 1980s, com- everything's completely practical. Mm-hmm. It's amazing they could do it so quickly and also on such a small budget because I think it holds up well. I mean, if you, were, if you didn't yeah. know 
it was a TV movie, you wouldn't know from watching it. There's certainly it is no less dramatically successful for the fact that it was made for TV on a generous but still TV budget. Right. Um, I think it has been shown periodically in like, projected in cinemas um, as kind of reissues and part of political campaigns. But uh, I think the filmmakers definitely did a good job. In terms, at no point was I distracted or pulled out of the film by the presence of kind of a rubbery Doctor Who type monster right. for which the BBC in the 1980s were fairly notorious at times. Well, I supposedly I, I read that some of the um, the damage uh, wounds that people would have when they were walking around <laughs> was a combination of ketchup and Rice Krispie <laughs> treats. Right. I didn't know that. I was just looking at someone's face and went, oh, that's not good. And you can see it because it was nominated for seven BAFTA awards, including a win for Best Single Drama. The movie won a lot of awards, and it seemed like a lot of where its origin came from. Uh, the director general of the BBC was Alistair uh, Milleen. He saw a movie in 1965, uh, or maybe it was when it was shown later on, called The War Game, which is an every bit depressing <laughs> and dark uh, as threads, but it's a lot simpler. It's a very simple story and, and quick breakdown. I think the movie's less than 50 minutes, um, so it really is a TV movie. But it was never really broadcast on television because it was very controversial content. Uh, but then when the director general of the BBC saw this, he said, let's redo this. Let's put a little bit more money into it because it hits mm -hmm. a lot of the similar beats. When this movie, Threads, was shown on television in 1985, Ted Turner, who owns a lot of stuff, you know, one of the things he owns is TBS, the, a television station. He provided an introduction with himself before the movie, talking a lot about the context of the film and why it's important for us to watch it, even though it's disturbing. And But Ted Turner uh, is a co-chair and a big funder for a think tank here in Washington, D.C. called the Nuclear Threat Initiative, a guy who has continued throughout his career not only you know owning TNT and TBS and also starting CNN. Um, he clearly, nuclear issues were always still at his heart. Um, so it's, it's, always, it's impressive that this has had a, a cross-the-pond reaction and lasting impact as well. So that's enough about the context of this film, uh, though it's important to kind of place it because a lot of people probably that are listening to this episode have never heard of Threads. Because it's not shown a lot on television. It's not something you can just flip through, and it's not just going to be on, on your local uh, television program on Friday night. No, and I don't think Netflix is going to recommend this, no matter how bleak your viewing history is. I was going to say, what would, what would you have to watch, like, failed surgical operations program? If you keep watching The Road on repeat, <laughs> and you like... Werner Herzog or something like that. Yeah. I think perhaps then you're ready for threads just on a on a casual Friday night. Oh, I would love a I would love a Blu-ray copy of this movie where Werner Herzog is the narrator. The rate sits. Yeah, that yeah. would be fantastic. Oh, all right. I'm gonna write that down for future idea when I have lots of money. Okay. <laughs> uh, so let's run through the plot. As usual, uh, spoiler warning. We're gonna pretty much cover the entirety of the details of the plot. So if you haven't seen this movie, it's available. At various spots on the internet for free. Um, I don't know if it's supposed to be online, but I found it on Vimeo, a couple of places on, on YouTube. Uh, but you can find this movie uh, in case you don't feel like investing some hard-earned currency to this particular depressing film. So the opening narration of this movie is a, a narration over a spider weaving a web, which made me already uncomfortable. <laughs> and it says, In an urban society, everything connects. Each person's needs are fed by the skills of many others. Our lives are woven together in a fabric. But the connections that make society strong also make it vulnerable. It makes sense, because the whole purpose of this movie, the, one of the major themes is, how do you unravel the threads 
of civilization. That nuclear weapons aren't just bombs that kill people or buildings, but they can destroy civilization. I think there's a literal scene in the movie at some point of children after the bomb goes off pulling threads from sweaters. And yeah, and it's like, I mean, okay. It was a little on the nose. Yeah, I got but, it. I got um, it's like mentioning the name of the movie in the movie. Yep. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's the day after tomorrow. <laughs> really? I always want it to be okay for me to bring like an air horn into a movie. And when they say the title of the movie, just like, right. so everybody knows. I listened to um, a movie uh, review podcast on, on the BBC here. And, and they, I remember them saying at one point there was a group of friends who had like as a film club would go to watch movies and if at any point the movie said the name of the movie, they would all stand up and walk out. <laughs> there are certain films you'd only last 30 seconds before that happens. Others you can get through the whole film. But this this kind of premise, this thesis behind it, I think it's interesting because so the, the politics of this film are clearly anti-nuclear, anti-arms race, pro-civil defense in the sense of resigned to this could happen and we should prepare but I think it's interesting that that central idea of nuclear weapons don't just kill people and destroy buildings, they unknit society, mm -hmm. is something the actual British government itself would have agreed with. And I'm sure we'll get into this a bit later, but that had been kind of the basis of official British planning almost from the late 1940s. These are, these are existential weapons that destroy the nation, the government, all aspects of hard physical power and also the bonds between people. So I think it's fascinating that the politics of the government and filmmakers are completely different, but they're actually agreeing on the central premise right. of how horrible these weapons are, what their effects are. They just disagree in what should we therefore do about it. And I would say in the United States for a large number of years, uh, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, gosh, probably even until the mid-80s, that was not really a, an idea that was shared um, for, with, with government. It, at least it seems like the, the public campaigns about civil defense said, this is not great, but it, it is survivable. I think so, so, so I think some of that is idiosyncratic to the British experience in that, so I mean, right from after World War II, um, British planners looked at this new invention of nuclear weapons and thought about what did it mean for Britain. And they very quickly came to the assessment that we have very close proximity to the Soviet Union. It's a relatively small landmass in which uh, we are very densely populated. Industry is concentrated. Uh, there was kind of the recognition that nuclear weapons are threatening to everyone, but uniquely threatening to Britain. Mm -hmm. And very early in kind of British war planning was the recognition that it would only take a handful of atomic bombs to kind of start to have this effect of existential destruction. By the time thermonuclear weapons come along, that seals it. There is there is no disputing what the consequences. Um, so it's interesting that uh, so in Britain, the development of that nuclear strategy was much more private than in America, which has much more of a th public think tank community in the 40s and the 50s. Um, but there's some interesting historical books on this of how Britain very quickly came to these conclusions kind of much sooner than some of the American policy and academic community. But we just didn't really talk about it. And eventually it languished and stagnated. But I think the, the ideas in threads are intrinsic to the British experience and kind of have been since the late 1940s. Well, you need to take those ideas when you're finished with your thesis and put it into a, a book for people to be able to read, because I think that's good that we are still talking about those issues. I'm sure it will be very reasonably priced as well, available <laughs> at all good booksellers. Exactly. Uh, maybe I can pay back my student loans. Uh, that's, that is the dream, isn't it? 
So speaking of people that don't have to worry about student loans anymore, uh, the characters in our story, because <laughs> the fact that there's uh, a war that takes place. So I'd like, we talked about this movie uh, in the planning. You broke it down into four different stages. Uh, the, right. back, the background crisis, the attack, breakdown, and long-term effects. So I think that's a good way to, to run through the plot here. As the guest, why don't you take the lead on uh, talking about the plot here? So, for example, background crisis. Like, so what's the, the impetus for the attack? And as we talk about the plot, I can already expect that this episode's going to go very long. So apologies to anyone who's listening uh, that's trying to get a quick podcast in during their morning commute. Just keep driving. Keep circling the block, going a roundabout, and just keep driving around like that roundabout that's out in front of uh, Buckingham Palace. Just keep going around it, round it, because it's going to be a long one. <laughs> So the film isn't science fiction. It's going for authenticity. But I think like any good what if, it needs to figure out a way for nuclear bombs to start dropping on Britain and the rest of the world. So it has to come up with some kind of crisis to be the uh, inciting incident, if you like, right. of the it, whole thing. It just can't have the Soviet Union saying one day, oh, I don't like the look of those people. I'm going to – I had a bad order of fish and chips, so I'm going to, I'm going to attack – like there has to be something that you could associate with reality. Exactly. And and hopefully, uh, I imagine as far as the filmmakers go, make the film more scary to the audience. The sense of, you may think your leaders are rational, and they may actually be, but is it possible that these horrifying weapons could be used and you can find yourself in this kind of situation in real life? So in terms of the film, the crisis it decides to utilize is a, is a I think there's been a theoretical coup in Iran the Soviet Union has stepped in to back up their guy in this fight, if you like, and the United States uh, begins to back up their favored regime. Do you think that this is implying that the U.S. instigated the coup, similar to how we instigated a coup in Iran before? Is that so? I think it's it's hard to divorce the fact that it is set in Iran. I mean, that might just be we need a coup to happen somewhere. What are the conflicts that are happening at the time? It's either Afghanistan or Iran. That is recent history, and it's probably credible that, yeah, America, Britain, we were not reluctant about backing coups at the time, especially in this idea of interdependent commitments, mm -hmm. being willing to back up some fairly unsavory regimes if they were deemed to be strategically important. In terms of the film, I was willing to give it a free pass on the idea of, okay, let's say there has been a coup. I can imagine... The United States and the Soviet Union at least squaring off to try and make sure that a regime favorable to them and their interests uh, came out on top here. Okay. The film goes from complete and utter peace at the very beginning to nuclear bombs dropping in the space of about three to four weeks. And we gradually see the crisis unfold, not from the point of view of leaders and the military, but from the civilians who are getting snippets off the news and are kind of gradually becoming more conscious of this peripheral crisis might actually affect them at home. Um, so we only get these occasional snapshots. It's not like all at once. It's not just a block of text at the beginning of the movie that says, here's everything that's happening, now war. It's a slow burn for the, and you really only get it if you are listening very attently. Yeah, exactly. So a bit left field. I don't know if you watched Suicide Squad when that came out. The first the first five minutes of Suicide Squad was yeah. backstory, backstory, backstory of all these different characters. Threads is much more disciplined in feeding <laughs> it to you in the way that you imagine if you were alive at the time and like Jimmy and Ruth going about your just normal daily business, this is how you would become aware of the situation and probably gradually become more concerned. Mm -hmm. So we see steps such as the Soviet Union 
send in the army to kind of back up the deposed regime. And we see images of columns of red army tanks, um, we assume, uh, driving into Iran. Uh, America responds in kind of a tit-for-tat fashion, uh, firstly with diplomatic warnings, but eventually America too starts deploying, after a week or two of crisis, starts deploying their own forces um, to set up things like a trip line. I think we see uh, uh, apparently American paratroopers at one point are stationed to block access to Iranian oil fields, obviously challenging the Soviet Union to either back down or cross America's tripwire and risk escalation. Right, and, and there's a one point where they have a radio message from the U.S. president. Uh, mm. he, ta he talks a little bit about the fact that, you know, what, what, their, what their plans are. And I thought that was interesting because the U.S. president sounded to me like a mix of Reagan's cadence, mm. but the accent was almost a little JFK. Like there was a little bit of like the Boston elongated A's at the right. end. I thought that was fascinating, those two. I don't know if that was intentional, if I was just putting that onto it. I was... So, so I was reminded. I, mean, I was born the year after this film came out, but I was reminded more of um, uh, Bush Senior. I thought it was someone huh. kind of doing an impression. But but I agree with you about like these are words I could easily imagine Reagan saying in this kind of if this scenario were to unfold. Um, but I wondered how because we never see the American president, we only hear their voice. Yeah, and there's no and there's no name attached to it too, which is always exactly a lack of specificity gives it a certain timeless quality or universality, rather than thinking. Oh, I know President Reagan, and he would never do that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, so certain aspects of the crisis, I think, are quite believable. You kind of get to get this gradual tit-for-tat ratcheting up of tension, and I think both sides are clearly, at some point in the crisis, start engaging in direct brinkmanship. So we get rumours via the television that the Soviet Union has stationed, uh, or America thinks the Soviet Union has stationed, tactical nuclear weapons on an airbase, uh, in, in Iran. America increased the readiness of its military forces in Europe, greater deployments of B-52 squadrons. Uh, as you said, we get public addresses from the American president explicitly referencing the potential for a crisis to get out of control, including to the level of total strategic exchange, which I think is interesting from a, a kind of a strategy point of view. Here is a clear attempt uh, referencing the idea of the threat that leaves something to chance of events getting outside the control of either side and it seems like the United States in this scenario is making an explicit attempt to diffuse the crisis by raising the prospect of tensions ratcheting up to the point of view that nobody can control it which again has lots of parallels to the Cuban Missile Crisis those were the fears that was that were in Kennedy's and Khrushchev's mm -hmm. mind so in terms of the crisis depicted in the film, I, my point of view, I think this American president is apparently very reckless in being willing to deploy U.S. forces rather than allies in direct proximity to Soviet forces. And the Soviet Union as well seems to be very willing to risk escalation by deploying their forces in such an aggressive manner. I kind of question certain steps that happened throughout the film as the two sides respond to each other and seem to be willing to constantly bring themselves closer and closer to the point at which it's impossible to step back. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the idea of a peripheral crisis leading to either accidental or deliberate war that escalates to either partial or total exchange is credible. I think there's very clear concern throughout the academic literature, throughout public 
consciousness, particularly in the early to mid-1980s of the Cold War. So I'll generally give the film a pass in terms of the credibility of the, the crisis itself. Though I do think, I find it hard to believe that both sides jump to using nuclear weapons as readily as they do in the film. Yeah, the, the actual decision to use them seems a little bit quick. But I'm glad you mentioned the idea of leaving something to chance and, and the idea that things can get out of control quickly. Some of the stuff that I thought was fascinating here that I haven't seen in other films is one of the days of the crisis, a U.S. sub, the USS Los Angeles, mm. was lost on patrol. And the characters that we know in the movie, they're just regular people, so they're only getting what they see over the news. But we don't know why that happened. It could have been an accident if we have the God's eye view Maybe there was a sub-bumping incident and one of the Russian subs hit the U.S. submarine or they thought they didn't know, they couldn't identify and they couldn't figure out what it was. And it was a mistake. But then once that happens, once it becomes public that a U.S. submarine was destroyed and lives were lost, then you have to then respond somehow. Otherwise, you lose resolve, you lose face. And you just those little tiny decisions that you keep doing and each one doesn't seem that bad. But when you look behind you and you look at all the mistakes Absolutely. then it becomes that situation where you have to use them, it seems like. And those, I think that situation is very credible. And we fortunately don't have too many examples from history, but there are plenty of examples, I think, from the Cuban Missile Crisis, obviously, of vessels deployed in close proximity. You can imagine, especially a naval situation where was this sub deliberately attacked or, as you say, some kind of accident or uh, just ramming each other. There are plenty of examples from Cold War, inverted commas, peacetime operations of submarines trailing other ships. So the, the Los Angeles, I looked it up, is a is a SSN. So one of the great uses of an SSN is intelligence gathering and reconnaissance. You can imagine that this probably was, in this scenario, it would be tasked to shadow Soviet ships in the area. Mm. There are lots of great stories of how often submarines would either crash into each other doing this or crash into uh, enemy vessels. There's an example from, I think it was the 50s or the 60s, a British submarine HMS Warspite uh, that we now know was shadowing a Soviet vessel so closely that it crashed into it. Uh, it came back into port with its conning tower, I think, damaged, or uh, I think it was, or perhaps the, um, the front end of the submarine. The official story was that it had hit an iceberg and apparently one of the uh, people working to fix the the submarine said, well, it's the first iceberg I've ever seen that had paint because it had Soviet <laughs> paint all the way the side. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what do the Soviets paint their submarines? I'm... Well, I, I, a very particular type of grey and slightly different grey to Western submarines. I don't know. That's fascinating. Um, but in terms of, I think, back to the crisis, so... Yes, there's this terrible risk of things getting out of control, but from a deterrent strategy point of view, that can be a good thing. That can be, mm-hmm. we know the threat to use nuclear weapons is hard to believe if we know the consequences of that is national suicide. You will retaliate as well. That is the logic of mutually assured destruction. So, I mean, so that is intrinsic to the writing of, of Thomas Schelling. It's like, how do you make that threat credible? And part of that is this idea of, well, we will deploy forces so close, we will all have this risk of accident. A corporal standing on the Berlin Wall could start World War Three, and leaders have an incentive to, to back down. While we have plenty of examples from the Cold War of both sides willing to 
stand up for inverted commas peripheral interests and increase tensions i find it hard to believe that both sides in the mid 80s would have been willing to engage in this level of brinkmanship for something that is fairly peripheral i mean this isn't berlin right. the soviets haven't deployed missiles in any newly provocative way or anything like that this is just a coup has happened in iran and apparently both american and soviet leaders are willing to deploy forces in close proximity the us then issues an ultimatum for the soviet union to withdraw the Soviets don't, and the American president authorizes a conventional strike on the Soviet uh, airbase in Iran. It was a B-52 squadron that attacked yeah. a base with, like yeah, I said, as conventional bombs. You know, if you're if you're sitting down on the on the ground level of this base and you're looking up and you see B-52s, <laughs> which have a nuclear mission, they carry. Well, I guess supposedly now in the United States, the just this is the news in the last week or so. Um, that B-52s will no longer have a nuclear gravity bomb mission, according to the latest uh, budget for the to the Trump administration. They'll still do uh, the cruise missiles, but they're no longer going to do uh, gravity bombs, which I thought was fascinating. Mm -hmm. But back when this movie came out, there was very much a dual-purpose mission. So you see them dropping bombs, you uh, you might not know exactly what they're doing. And, and even if the attack is fully conventional, what you've you've basically made the Soviet Union pay a blood price and it's impossible to imagine any leader down. being willing to accept that and back down. The domestic consequences of that would be too high. Uh, I mean, again, back to shelling, that is the point of stationing forces sometimes in close proximity. It's not so they can fight and achieve some great tactical victory. It's so you know there is a blood price mm -hmm. that I will have to pay if you attack me and you know I will respond. And and how they res and and how they respond is the Soviets <laughs> jump escalate this a little bit. They use <laughs> uh, nuclear tipped air defense missiles to destroy the incoming B fifty twos. So I, we talked about this in previous episodes a little bit. I think it was in our failsafe episode where we talked about the Nike Hercules missile system mm -hmm. for at least on the U S side, which was mm -hmm. shooting down incoming bombers, not using you know aircraft dogfights, you know ground defense with conventional weapons, but I just put a big nuclear bomb in the middle of the the sky, and anything that's within that area will get knocked down, and, and fall apart. Mm -hmm. There was a, there was a Soviet system very equivalent for it, and apparently this mm -hmm. is what was used against the U.S. bombers. And now nuclear weapons are are there; they've been used, and the U.S. uses a technical nuclear weapon on this base. And at this point, it seems like it just kind of falls uh, fall, falls apart from the point of view of the. The characters, this period of silence, where there seems to be an indication that, yes, a short tactical nuclear exchange has happened very far away. It seems that both sides have deliberately paused, perhaps recognizing that they both lost their minds for a little bit and apparently were willing to fire nukes at each other. But rather than this providing a renewed emphasis for let's de-escalate, let's increase dialogue, we get, again, more news reports, more hints that... Despite frantic attempts at mediation, uh, communication between the US and Soviet Union has broken down. It seems like even NATO and Britain, while lending rhetorical support, aren't necessarily involved. We get hints the British foreign minister has no idea what is happening <laughs> and is just telling everyone to be calm and urging restraint. Uh, so I think when we compare this scenario to the fortunately few examples we have from nuclear history, again, the best one is the Cuban Missile Crisis where we know when they just stood at the brink like this, they or the, stepped or back. I would also say the Berlin crisis seems Absolutely. to be a, a big one for this one. I guess maybe 
the Berlin Crisis is a very good origin for the day after that other yeah. the the U.S. version. These two seem to be what people would yeah. when they watch Threads. That's what they draw to if they're up there from that age. And, and perhaps one that's closer to the time period of the film, but the filmmakers could obviously know about would be I think like the Able Archer Crisis. So this idea of a particular low point in the Cold War where it seems the Soviet Union genuinely believed NATO was about to attack them to the point of delegating control and uh, making preparedness to launch nuclear weapons if they were attacked by NATO. And I think when what we now know when news of this reached Thatcher and Reagan through British spies in the Soviet embassy in London, when they learned how close they'd come to the brink, uh, certainly Thatcher and Reagan stepped back when they realised how could we have possibly been misperceived? How could we have come that close and not realized it? It seems like when leaders, what we know from history, when they realize they're getting this close to something that can get out of their control and have this scale of consequences, whatever you think about nuclear weapons, they do provide that moment for pause and reflection. And every example we had so far is fortunately people have stepped back in this particular crisis. Most of it is very credible to me, except when the actual shooting starts and particularly when they start launching nukes at each other. Right. Uh, we get hints of uh, the Soviets have cut off communications with Berlin. There's riots in East Germany. Uh, a U.S. aircraft carrier gets sunk in the Persian Gulf. The Kitty Hawk. Yep. Uh, the U.S. blockades Cuba. I think you get the sense of a mechanical escalation of reciprocation. Neither side wants a strategic exchange, but it's apparently getting all out of control within... I think three or four weeks in the film's timeline, we get to the point of view where at 3.30 a.m. Washington time, the attack warning comes through. Uh, the Soviet Union has apparently launched a preemptive strike against Britain, but also uh, the United States and NATO, presumably. And very quickly, this initial attack then leads to a full strategic nuclear exchange and we're all on our way to nuclear winter. In terms of the film's thesis, this is obviously necessary. It has to happen so we can look at the main themes, which are civil defense and long-term survival, what your prospects would be. But the actual scenario, I remember the first time I watched this, it didn't sit well with me. It felt like either it was artificial or a very unfair portrayal of Western and Soviet leaders, based on what we know. Hmm. Or uh, perhaps it was a very a reflection of the personal politics of the filmmaker, but given how even-handed the rest of the film is, I assume it's just, we needed a scenario. Something. It's a little bit artificial, but let's go with it. Great. Well, think that's, I think that's perfect background of the how the crisis almost slowly <laughs> evolves because of mistakes, and, and mm. no one seems like they wanted this to happen. They always, everyone says, we don't want this to start, but we always find our way uh, into it. <laughs> I think one of the powerful things about Threads, as we mentioned, it's not just like this, all this big airburst level conversation, 20,000 feet above the ground storyline. That's great, except our own characters, Jimmy and Ruth, are going through their own personal crises. Right. Uh, and you have to, you still have to deal with that. So Jimmy and Ruth, they're, they are teenagers in love. They don't, they, I think they're not married. They're not, I think they're maybe in college Maybe or maybe right after high school, so maybe mm -hmm. probably Ru maybe Ruth's in college, but Jimmy's not because of the. There's also an element here of, of class distinctions. Ruth is from a very higher upper class family, uh, someone that can afford the materials to build a fallout shelter. In in a way that would be very 
credible and relatable to a British audience. Um, so, I mean, that was something I was going to ask. I mean, not getting as much of a digest, I'm sure, of, Amer- of British films as I get of Americans. I think I have a reasonably good ear for, like, American accents and being able to pick up things like someone's social background. Mm-hmm. Uh, Britain, we're all very aware of class. It kind of abuses our nas- national consciousness and government and everything else. I think to a British audience, it would be very clear that, yes, these are there's class tension here. Jimmy's from a very quite cliched salt of the earth working class family they're in a, a terraced house a very small living room whole families at each other's throats but clearly loves each other and eats together ruth is from a much more middle class family i would say the mother's wearing pearls the um we see the father later building his fallout shelter in a waistcoat and tie because <laughs> even in nuclear war you must keep up appearances in case the neighbors drop around <laughs> Um, I think there's lots of cues here that a British audience would pick up on. So like when the two families are going to meet, you can t- know what there's no outward tension, but you know that Ruth's parents think oh, this this guy's from the wrong side of the tracks. He's got my daughter pregnant, doesn't even have a job. I think Jimmy's father as well hints the fact that this is a decision that's going to influence your whole life. Or are you really ready for this? These are the, I think the film very... It portrays very well British sensibilities and also the sense of the mundane, the everyday little concerns juxtaposed with these big world events that are happening around these characters of which they have absolutely zero control, right. but which is going to define their future. Which crisis do you focus on? You know, the, exactly. the one you have control over, the one you don't. And there's a couple of points in the film where both characters are talking about the future. So we see them in the space of three weeks, Ruth goes from finding out she's pregnant to they're engaged going to buy a flat, have bought a flat, and are now redecorating the flat. So I don't know much about the property market in the 1980s. That seems pretty fast, especially (laughs) in a recession. But again, we'll give them a pass on that. These characters are are talking about the future and planning their life together in a way we know they don't have this future. And this horrible sense of foreboding is, is, is done well. And even Jimmy is clearly not ready to settle down. We see him chasing girls... Uh, at, at one point, we see him. He we get a, a scene of his car at night. It's illuminated suddenly by the lights of trucks, which is the British government preparing emergency supplies to be attacked. And Jimmy's head pops up, and a girl, not Ruth, who he's picked up in the pub. And again, it's so I'm not saying Jimmy deserves what he gets um, <laughs> for cheating on his his pregnant uh, fiance, but I think it does the personal drama very well in a way that's very believable, but also. Uh, it never misses an opportunity to twist a knife. Mm-hmm. Conversations about the future. We see Jimmy's father planting vegetables that we know aren't going to grow. Uh, it does that side of things very well. And all, through, all the way throughout, the, their personal mundane things are punctuated by these sudden jarring notes. So we get like at one point, at that very first scene where they're quite a cliched opening to lovers in a car on top of a cliff that's suddenly interrupted by the jet engine of an RAF tornado passing overhead and it's jarring and there's lovely little notes of forebodings i don't know what genre you'd put threads in it claims to be docudrama but i think there's definite elements of thriller of horror at some points and this reminds me of the of horror films where you see the killer you know in the first act you do what's going to happen but we need time to get to the point where the first body drops and that kind of thing 
Yeah, I, it reminds me of some of the best Hitchcock movies where, mm. you know, you have a conversation and there's two people sitting at a table and they're talking mm. about, you know, what they're going to do later that afternoon. But the audience knows that underneath that table is a bomb right. and it's going yeah. off. We know something's about to yeah. happen, but the characters don't. I think that this movie plays that uh, to the umph degree. Like, um, I think of some of the different mundane things that you see in the movie. You see milk deliveries being made mm. constantly throughout the movie. Uh, which I think is fascinating because it's very much that a normal element of life. Like if you can imagine milk deliveries are such a, a quaint idea that you need it, you, you need the milk to be made and processed and then delivered and there needs to be roads, people to do those deliveries mm. and a house that needs to exist. Like these things we create with the threads of civilization. Mm. But then if you, if you destroy that with a nuclear bomb, um, that's never going to happen again, especially with the idea. You, talk, you hear a lot about Strontium-90 is one of those byproducts of a nuclear attack that mm. directly affects calcium in your body and goes to your bones and will mm. get it. Well, cows will eat it when they eat the grass and it, the milk will be dead for that generation of cows. And I think that's mm. a fascinating, I don't know if they were going for that, but that's what I thought when I would keep seeing milk deliveries. And then when the bomb goes off, you see milk <laughs> bottles melt away. Yeah. And there's an earlier scene where Jimmy's younger sister is doing her homework at a table and she even she at this point is now watching the news of this unfolding Iran crisis. And her mom then puts down on the table the biggest glass of milk I have ever seen any. This is the side of the child's head. <laughs> she has to slowly drink it while watching the news. I, I felt sorry for the, the poor actor. Yeah. He must have had to drink litres of milk while filming that scene. But you're right, this idea of even the most mundane, simple things take a village. The number of moving parts that have to go into that so let's talk a little bit about the the official government response to this. We talked mm. a little, we talked already about Jimmy and Ruth, but then we, we meet uh, Clive Sutton, who is a, a government official, uh, but not a top level person. He seems to be maybe someone high up in the regional government uh, in in Sheffield. Uh, but he mm -hmm. he's handed an, an envelope, and it's sec marked secret. And he opens it up and he finds out, uh, oh, here's the plan that we need to follow. There's emergency powers that are being initiated from the central government and he has to start building a team together putting his his avengers style team together to <laughs> start uh be preparing and a lot of the movie follows him just doing simple mm. things making sure that the roads are clear if they're going to have enough food how are they going to have fuel all that stuff i think is a fascinating piece that will go into greater detail when we start talking about the nuclear points but i thought that was a fascinating element that there seems to be yeah there's a, there's, there's a process there absolutely and Again, I think one of the greatest strengths of this film is its unflinching authenticity and honesty. And part of that is its use of, with the best knowledge of the time, what official plans would have been. So, yes, this council official is the highest level of government we see other than voices on the radio. Uh, we don't get ever to see inside Downing Street or Whitehall or the Oval Office. And that can be frustrating at times because you want to know, did that submarine sink because of an accident, say? Or, But yes, this is the highest level of official we see. He seemed, I'm try, I was trying to work out who he was. He's probably like the just a fairly senior local government official, like kind of the equivalent of, we don't really have lots of mayors in Britain, definitely not in the 1980s, but I think that kind of level of, of local government administration He's, he seems honest, he seems hardworking, conscientious, not the highest of flyers, obviously, but his, his heart is obviously in the right place. We see him concerned about his wife. Right. The, the, uh, the scenes with his wife where he has to pack clothes and he has to tell yeah. the wife, which he probably believes it's not going to be a problem. 
but then he you you get a, a glimpse that he takes his wife's photos mm. like a picture, a picture frame yeah if it happens and he follows through his duty as he's meant to he's going to have to leave her to fend for herself in this post-nuclear hellscape <laughs> as the british state knew a post-attack situation was going to be there was no hoping for the best here we knew what it was going to look like uh, he may not be fully clued up on that but he should be reasonably aware of the fact he has never seen even if his wife survives the blast All right he is probably never seeing her again and her last days are not going to be that rosy huh. and i think it dealt with those things it did the show don't tell thing yep. of good screenwriting so it, it little thing like when he packs he packs the um picture having just reassured his wife it's all going to be fine and i think she notices he took the picture he thinks this might actually happen it, it tugged on his heartstrings quite well i thought and it, it just says a to this is a total aside but um it reminded me there's a movie that i actually like called san andreas which mm -hmm. is the movie with the rock oh the rock yeah helicopter pilots <laughs> i'm originally from los angeles california so we think about earthquakes all the time so it's funny to see this movie which is you know if there's a giant earthquake in the san andreas fault that California would basically fall into the ocean. And the movie is interesting because The Rock is the best pilot who can fly a helicopter and save people. He's part of an emergency rescue squad. And his job is to save people during this earthquake. Mm -hmm. And then it's just at a certain point during the, the movie, he decides, I'm going to take this helicopter and save my wife and child. Right. So, my wife's in, in Los Angeles and then my daughter is in San Francisco. So I'm just going to take this helicopter and go save them. And The Rock's supposed to be the hero of the movie. And he steals this helicopter and he's supposed to be dedicated to saving people that mm. aren't his family i love the rock but that movie makes me just hate the fact that he's the villain of the <laughs> film and clive sutton would never do this clive sutton would say you know i've got a commitment i have a responsibility i have a duty exactly he does it he does his duty very well and he he tries to hold when everything does go to hell he tries to hold his team together yeah uh, quite well. And even then, the, the team around him, as you say, his Avengers-style collection of local council figures, <laughs> non-high-flying scientists, understandably go, they're trying to do their best as well, but they are stressed by the situation. And I think everyone tries to pull together in the way that you imagine people would in that situation, but also they are at their personal limits in a, in a very credible way. So let, let's take those that Avengers team, let's put them in a bunker, that's essentially where they go. They go in the bait, like the bunker area of some city official right. building. And then the first time we find out the attack is coming is the sirens start going off. Right. As yet, we haven't located all the root vegetable clumps on local farms, but stocks of sugar, wheat, flour, and rice are quite good. Attack warning. Is it for real? Attack warning. It's for bloody real. Is it? Right, get to your stations. Get that generator going. The system in, in the UK at the time was called uh, Handel. It's, it's analogous to the Conelrad system that was yeah. in the United States, although I believe Conelrad was for civilian population and part of a radio system where it's how you would find out about an attack before now we have emergency broadcast system that would interrupt the television. Seems like the Handel system, it's for local officials to, mm -hmm. and some sirens go off and I, I listened to the video, you can get it on YouTube, of what those recordings sounded like. And I think the movie basically just takes that and you start hearing the, the sirens and the buzzing, incoming attack, code red. And that's when our yeah. Avengers team gets going. So the authenticity of the British war, I think largely the film does it very well. And I think it's interesting. So the, this film came out in 1984. 
the few years previously, there had been a couple of controversies about civil defence in Britain, uh, uh, investigations, both government and by journalists, as the state of readiness uh, and finding the picture was not that rosy. In terms of what the actual plans were, so in theory, the British government realised from 1955, when there was a committee put together to study this, called the Strath Committee, Hmm. looked at the consequences of nuclear attack on Britain, in particular a thermonuclear attack. And the fundamental conclusion that came out of this was central government will be utterly devastated. The country will be effectively destroyed. One response of the British government was therefore going to be to break the country up into a number of different regions. The numbers changed over time as we chopped and changed. There were Mm -hmm. probably anywhere between 11 and 17, depending on what stage of the Cold War this was. Hmm. Each region would basically act as an independent self-governing unit, which would be headed by a commissioner. Uh, By this stage, this film takes place. That commissioner should be a bit more senior than... Clive Sutton, was that his first name? He is referred to, I think, at one point as a commissioner. So he would be the most senior official in his region. In theory, he should have evacuated to a much larger, better prepared bunker. So each region was meant to have a large place that would that would become what was called a um a regional seat of government, RSG, which was a should have been a large, normally two-story bunker, quite well hardened away from any major targets and from there in the run-up to a nuclear exchange if the crisis slowly unfolded this should have been gradually staffed brought to higher levels of alert and readiness he should have been evacuated to there in advance and from there he should have been able to exercise some degree of control along with the staff around him pretty much what that they're in a a, a government complex building like several floors up yeah and the building collapses on top of them yeah, instead of going to one of these remote bunkers, he goes to what is basically a basement underneath the town hall, and unsurprisingly, the town hall collapses, burying him and the rest of his team. And while they still maintain some communication, they are trapped uh, under all this rubble. And we see what happens to them across the three or four weeks following the attack. And, uh, spoiler, it does not end well for them. Right. In terms of authenticity, it depends on if not all of these bunkers were built. Uh, in the way that they should have been. Um, They weren't all ready at the time this film takes place. So it is credible that perhaps, even if he was the regional commissioner, he wouldn't have been able to get to a a place that was as hardened as it should have been with the stockpiles it should have had and the communication links that should survive the theoretical effects of a full nuclear attack on Britain. So let's, let's talk about the attack. They get the siren. And what are some of the first targets that are hit? It seems like it's like an RAF base in the area so the film is occasionally narrated by a a literal narrator and the rest of the time we get uh, on-screen text which appears to let us know what's happening mm. and the narrator is reliable we don't get the trope from it's a docudrama we don't have an unreliable narrator here thankfully <laughs> um, it's confusing enough <laughs> So yes, so like you said, the attack warning comes through. So uh, Britain had an early warning system in place from 1962 uh, at RAF Filingdales, a giant radar station that was part of the US uh, ballistic missile early warning system. The radar itself was paid for by the United States, but the rest of the facilities were paid for by Britain. The British planners knew at best they were only going to have the few minutes warning of an incoming nuclear attack. 
So that warning was very quickly issued through to the local authority bunkers, and we see that. In terms of the attack that does happen, the first salvo seems to be an attempt at a disarming first strike, I think. So we, we're told that 80 megatons fall over the UK. It seems to start with a high altitude detonation somewhere above the North Sea that we're told disables communications around Britain and also parts of Northern Europe. So this seems like an attempt to use EMP effects. Sorry, anyone who's playing the drinking game. Uh, <laughs> EMP drink uh, to knock out communications across Britain and uh, Northern Europe. And this seems to be followed up by megaton range attacks on British targets with a tactical intent. So I presume that we don't see it. We see a mushroom cloud in the distance from the city. I presume it is. Uh, we are told there are numerous sites that are RAF air bases nearby, NATO communications, the sort of things the Soviets might want to knock out if they thought they were getting into a shooting war, but not a full strategic exchange. Yeah, I think one of the ones that they do identify, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce this terribly, is uh, Royal Air Force Base. Uh, but that supposedly is 17 miles from Sheffield. Like I looked this up. It is a base that was in existence at the time. With uh, it was there were some Phantom jets there and some the tornadoes, but no longer is it serve that mission. It's another just an yeah. airport. I could see 17 miles for the type of bomb that was probably dropped, which would have been in the large larger side of the. Uh-huh. Although I don't know actually, the, the movie is, is a little bit unclear about what megaton is used at any particular target. Yeah, yeah, we're just told the cumulative megatonnage. Right. it seems to be 80 across all of Britain, and apparently that isn't a strategic countervalue attack. That is apparently just that is tactically motivated. It, and that make and that makes sense. Um, but I guess usually for air bases, the, the megatonnage doesn't need to be incredibly high because they're what mm-hmm. you're doing is you're knocking out r- runways and and yeah. usually things that are not bunker level quality. Seventeen miles, you could probably see a mushroom cloud. Yeah, this is something Britain actually thought about so early in its own nuclear experience. So when it just became a nuclear power, it only had fission weapons. It was thinking about how are we going to use our weapons? One, are we going to, for example, consider counterforce uses, whether against uh, attempts at preemption of Soviet nuclear weapons or in support of the land battle. And one of the conclusions was, no, we can't do this because fission weapons just aren't big enough, aren't accurate enough, mm-hmm. uh, probably delivered by aircraft that are going to get shot down. When thermonuclear weapons came along, to some extent that was seen as solving the accuracy problem because you don't have to be that accurate. Right. It's going to knock out an airfield if it's in the general vicinity. So Britain kind of considered the idea of what are called damage limitation strikes but from its own side of the problem, again, the planners recognize in this very densely packed population, it doesn't matter if the Soviets attempt to stage a counterforce attack, as they seem to do at the start of this film. The reality is, even if you target air bases, if you're using thermonuclear range weapons, mm-hmm. we see the blast wave devastates the city, even though it, there isn't an airburst above Sheffield. The electromagnetic effects obviously affect everything. We also get hints of blast. An 80 megaton attack is going to have fallout going across the whole of Britain. Yeah. In the early 50s, the planners thought about, could we evacuate the cities, perhaps get people up to Scotland, to some of the, the least populated places of Britain? And we realized very quickly, no, we aren't the size of a continent. It doesn't matter how we're attacked or what with. Any attack is basically going to be strategic in its effects. So on that side of things, I thought, even though we aren't given too many specifics, that felt very authentic to me. 
Yeah, so as you described, 80 megatons in total uh, over the over the United Kingdom and the first wave, they say killed two and a half to nine million people, which is quite a lot, but not nearly as much as what happens later when they start to do the full exchange. 3,000 megatons between the East and the West, so I assume that includes the United States, but it looks like the total number was 210 megatons on the UK, uh, which is unclear about where, like how that's distributed and whether or not that included the previous 80. I guess it assumes that it includes it, but quite a lot. Yeah. So to put that in context, the British planners, from like the so, so my thesis specializes in the, the uh, focuses on the 50s and 60s, which is why I keep going back to that. Yep. From an early time in the Cold War, the British planners assumed that it would only take perhaps around a dozen thermonuclear yield weapons directed against Britain. Didn't really matter what the targets would be to effectively cause complete and utter collapse. So 210 megatons falling just on Britain is a pretty substantial attack that I don't think any planners would think would be survivable in any meaningful sense. So uh, definitely in this scenario, neither side held back. Mm -hmm. In terms of credibility, I mean, allegedly what we know about, certainly NATO had the strategy of, of graduated deterrence, a flexible response of the idea of if a nuclear exchange happens, can we put the... Can we get the toothpaste back in the tube? Can we get? Can we de-escalate this situation? Apparently, the Soviet Union, similarly, its war plans. I've seen some some great maps of mushroom mm -hmm. clouds working their way steadily across Western Europe, allegedly supporting the Soviet advance. <laughs> Whether or not this would have happened in practice, we don't know. But it seems like in this situation, a tactical exchange has very quickly escalated to full strategic uh, contra-value targeting. Right. In terms of credibility, thankfully, we don't know how credible that is, but I imagine if, yes, Britain has been hit with 80 megatons, it's effectively destroyed. If the same has presumably happened to France, the United States, I can imagine that becoming a full nuclear exchange pretty quickly because at that stage, what's the point? You probably want to get your strike back so nobody wins this situation, and I imagine the Soviets would then respond in kind, as they apparently do with their full-on counter-value targeting that then hits the city of Sheffield and presumably pretty much every other large urban centre in Britain. Yeah, I don't think London's around. I think we, we've had a movie history where you see the Thames River destroyed and then you see Buckingham Palace falling apart or the, the I forget the name of the Ferris wheel. Oh, the London Eye. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you don't need to see that again destroyed, but... Especially recently, I don't know what, the last few years, Marvel films, yeah. or London has fallen, or, or something. Yeah, G.I. Oh, Joe, I, uh, I, I still can't get over the fact that in G.I. Joe 2, London's gone. It's just completely destroyed, and we're just like, okay, that's fine. And Independence Day 2, the yeah. first one we saw London destroyed, and then the second one, oh, apparently it's been rebuilt and destroyed again. Apparently uh. we just we just can't catch a break. Um I know. I've got to figure out of all these movies, like geoposition, where I should live. I was going to say no one ever attacks like Buenos Aires, but then in, that's what happens. Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers, yeah. Yeah, they exactly. kick out. So there's no place to stay. I, so I was wondering. So my, I grew up in Northern Ireland, and I was wondering what would have happened to Ireland in this situation. So presumably Northern Ireland would have been attacked because Belfast is a large city, Londonderry as well, major ports, some manufacturing, arms companies, and that kind of thing. But Southern Ireland presumably would have been neutral in this situation. 
much like Switzerland, just has to watch this full strategic nuclear exchange happening on its doorstep, mm. presumably knocked out by EMP, but then with the fallout, and, and we'll get to later, the effects of nuclear winter, I felt kind of, I want to see the follow-up. I want to see what happened in Ireland <laughs> and anyone who evacuated. And actually doing background reading for this, um, I was reading about general civil defence and how Britain compared to other countries. I didn't realise Switzerland had a mandated policy of every new building after, I think, 1962 has fairly hardened fallout shelters built as part of the structure, even if it's a private house or a apartment complex or an office or whatever it is. Yeah, there's there's two um, sequels to be made to this film as to do the Irish and the Swiss inherit the earth? <laughs> and what does that look like? <laughs> um, yeah, when we did research for the episode that I did on Blast from the Past, that romantic comedy about oh, yeah, yeah. about the you know fallout shelters and the... I, th- I believe the, the, the Swiss have a one-to-one ratio where you need at least one spot in every shelter for yep. each person. Or if you don't build it, you pay for your local authority to build your place somewhere else. So you have to subsidize it in a way that so the British planners, again, looked at the idea of how much would a, a full shelter policy cost, including that kind of scenario of every new building and providing public shelters. I think we looked at this again in the mid-1970s or early 1980s, and the conclusion was it would have cost £70 billion, which Ooh. was four times the defence budget. That's a lot. Ec- economic crisis and lack of money was a theme running through Britain's experience from, well, before World War Two and all the way up to, well, the 90s. Even in the best scenario, I don't think a full public shelter policy was ever going to get off the ground. No, not so much. But our characters try to deal with a shelter um, situation in their own way. We, we see Jimmy's family, who again, they're the more salt-of-the-earth, uh, working-class family. They build a lean-to shelter. So this is a, a system that a lot of public campaigns about civil defense said, go ahead and do this. A lean-to shelter would be some kind of way where you take a bunch of Say you take the doors off the hinges and you go in your basement. You're supposed to go in your basement, put this thing kind of at an angle, and then you're supposed to put yep. dirt and sandbags and whatever. If you got lead lying around, you put your lead there or whatever you got. And then you basically hide inside this weird lean-to thing for two weeks. And you see Jimmy just yeah, yeah. Jimmy's family just tries to build this thing very quickly because they weren't ready for it. You're basically camping inside your own house. Pretty much. And I think, again, where this film does very well is it uses the official advice right down to playing the actual broadcasts that were prepared. So there's a public information campaign called Protect and Survive, which mm-hmm. is notorious in Britain. There was a big reaction against this because there was a perception that the campaign was basically telling you, here are some steps you can take, but essentially you're on your own. Uh, so some of the protests, it was relabeled um, uh, protest and die <laughs> uh, or things like that. Yeah. So I think the fact that we see these families following the official advice to the letter. Okay, some of them get to survive the immediate blast because they're lucky, they're not directly under it. Some of them get flash burns, but nothing more severe than that. They have the most bleak existence. So you have to spend two weeks hiding under a door if you have taken the advice and built the shelter and your house hasn't been completely knocked down. If anyone dies in your shelter, you're meant to remove the body to another room. Not before you like write a little note on what their name is and how they died. Exactly. On the body, then wrap it up. Another note on the wrapping so we can tell you know, at various levels what the, the identity of this person is. And again, if after four or five days, if no one's come, oh, then you can take the body outside and bury it in a shallow grave, but quickly get back inside because there will be fallout everywhere. Mm-hmm. But this public information campaign took several forms. One was going to be leaflets that would be distributed. Britain always assumed that a full nuclear exchange 
would be preceded by a long period of tension, perhaps about a month. And this would give time for the British state to kick into gear. Preparations would start to be made. Officials would disperse to the bunkers and the public advice campaigns would start. So we see this unfold in, in a very realistic manner. Pamphlets, it would have been radio broadcasts and some of it would be on television. And those videos are on YouTube. Yeah, I I'm, I'm sure you probably watched it in preparation. Did you find them as chilling as I did, in particular the music? Yeah, I, I have a, I have a lot of that on when we go a little bit the next stage of our conversation. But yes, okay. they're, they're very chilling. And I guess one of the people, I think his name is Roger Lim, who did the soundtrack, the little jingle mm -hmm. at the end of each, each one always ends in a little yeah. jingle. Also did some music for the BBC for Doctor Who. Okay, <laughs> I can see that. I, yeah. Weird juxtapositions, but yes, that the music interlude at the very beginning I, I think I turned to my wife when I watched, was watching these things and I said, it gets my attention. Reassure, yes. It, but it doesn't reassure me. It gets my attention and be like, oh gosh, here's what we need to do. Because then you have people like Ruth's family. They didn't build a shelter, but they have at least a, a basement. Even in a nuclear war, does class come into play in terms of your life chances? Yeah. So it's, it's relatively rare for British houses to have cellars or basements. Ruth's family seem to be quite lucky in that they have a below ground shelter to which they can evacuate. So they don't bother really with building a lean-to. They dutifully stock with their two weeks of supplies. Ruth's grandmother is discharged from hospital. They all evacuate down there. They stay inside except to bury, the, dispose of the body of the grandmother when they have to. They are following the advice. And they're not well off, but they're clearly much better off than Jimmy's family, who Jimmy's mother is covered in flash burns because she was right. semi-tilted towards the um, the blast when it went off. We see them, they have basically no protection against fallout, let alone adequate supplies. They don't have proper water. They At some stage, Jimmy's father ventures out to get water from the tap and surprise, surprise, the utilities aren't working. So I think, there, again, there's this element of class consciousness that's running through the film. And it was definitely a reflection of British politics in the 1980s of hmm. uh, between the left and the right and obviously Thatcherism and Labour's battles with the um, centre-left and hard-left, which I don't know how much that came across to a non-British audience, so I might be overly sensitive. No, I, I think I, I see it a lot more when you talk about it, but it's, it's hmm. clear from the movie that there's definitely a, two different levels of response. And again, these aren't people who prepared ahead of time. The, one of the things... The war, the war game that this movie is, is inspired by, mm. there's explicit scenes where there's people on the ground that a reporter is, is talking to them and saying, how much are you spending on your fallout mm. shelter? Because they recommend, and I'm just I'm making up numbers here because I, I forget what they say, but it costs £100 to build your shelter. And they, they ask this woman, how much are you spending? And she goes, five? I don't have £100 to... Mm. To, to spend on these things. And then you, the next scene is a guy who's clearly very wealthy. I think he's like a doctor. And he not only does he build one shelter in his house, he builds one in the backyard too. Mm. He has, and he's like, I bought all these sandbags. And he's just smiling. He's like, I bought all these sandbags. I built this other shelter. And then he pulls out a rifle and says, and I bought this too in case anyone tries to get in my shelter. It's kind of echoes of the Fallout games of the rich got to go and hide in and they got to pay the insurance policy of the shelters. And if you were lucky to get there in time, you got to live and your relatives will emerge in 300 years and see the survivors of the poor people who, who had to live in the immediate aftermath. And right. Maybe a little less science fiction-y, but I think there's definitely still an element of, even in nuclear war, 
the state will be destroyed, but the British class system will survive in its own way. I don't know if that's inspiring or uh, (laughs) reassuring or sad. That's true. So when the bomb goes off, Jimmy is out and about, and Jimmy and his friend Bob hide underneath a, a car during the blast. And then Jimmy, we don't really see Jimmy anymore. He seems like he didn't make it. No, it's, I think it was very effective. We don't see him for the vast majority of the film. They keep him off screen. We don't know if he's alive. Ruth doesn't know. She assumes that he's dead. And it doesn't seem like he goes to check on his family because we follow his family for yeah. a few weeks after. And Jimmy's younger brother dies uh, in the initial attack. His mother is burned. His family are, get radiation sickness. But he apparently doesn't come around at any point to check on them. Jimmy's not the good son. And he doesn't drop by on Ruth either. He knows where they live because we saw him earlier meeting the family. Right. I don't know if this is a commentary on Jimmy. We've already seen him cheat on his fiance. Is he just not the nice guy that we thought he was? Um, but we you know we also see he cares for he he keeps and cares for birds, and really he he just wants to live his life. He might not be ready to settle down, so maybe he's not all that bad. I don't know. <laughs> Um, I thought it was effective that they keep Jimmy away so we don't know what happens to him. Because it's one of those things, it's a trope in disaster movies where two people yeah. that that, yeah. that want to meet each other find each other again. Yeah. In, these, in the level of conflict uh, and violence and destruction, there's a good chance you would never see that person again. Yeah, um, unless you've arranged the meeting spot or something like that. If you say you're, yeah, yes, like Jimmy, you you were out in the open when it happened. If your house was destroyed, that kind of thing, that seems credible. But I, I did find odd. Oh, Jimmy doesn't apparently care to go check on his family at any point. Yeah. Then we see other other parts of normal life interrupted when the bombs start to go off. We see a guy on a toilet uh, who's like uh, more annoyed that there's some noise outside. <laughs> than he is the fact that this is happening. A woman sees what's happening and on the street. I thought this was a really powerful scene. She just starts, her. you see uh, urine running down her leg. Pure fright. Yeah. You see people driving around cars and there's crashes and the cars stop working because of the uh, EMP attack. Drink. Drink. The people that may not be listening to this and understanding this, there's a, there's a great running joke uh, in the nuclear community of any time that someone talks about electromagnetic pulse in a movie or in discussions, you have to drink because it's this thing that just constantly gets brought up. And we talk about this a lot in our episode on Broken Arrow. I think it's our fourth episode. That EMP is a controversial, disputed discussion about whether or not this stuff will actually happen to the degree. It's sometimes used as a scare tactic. Like if North Korea launches one of these off above our the middle of the United States, everything, everything you have is going to stop working. Yes. We actually did high-altitude testing uh, with nuclear weapons, and... Yep. There was EMP effects, but it wasn't nearly to the degree. I think often dramatically in films, video games actually as well, it's it's often just used, I think, as a MacGuffin, yeah. as, a, as a means of furthering the plot. What would a American technological warfare look like if the Russians detonated a, yeah. a nuclear weapon in space and Mexico invaded? I think that's Call of Duty ghosts or something. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, it's certainly a trope, <laughs> put it that way. There's one scene of a cat which I guess what they did was they, they gave the cat a bunch of catnip and it started mm. rolling around and enjoying yes, the I, I wondered how they got that shot, actually. It was an interesting one. They used catnip on the cat and then they reversed the shot. So it looked like the cat was alive and then it like rolled over on its back because it was just it was like a reverse shot of what they when it played with catnip. And then they put a, an image superimposed in the front of it. Uh, of like fire and flames and um, but yeah there's a lot yeah. of lot of that so let's now move to the next level which is the breakdown the attack has happened sheffield is not hit with a direct blast but they talk about crew which i guess is uh, to the yep. southwest on the other side of this park 
of Sheffield, mm. the big national park. Which is which is curious because Sheffield itself probably would have been hit. So as we're told by the on-screen text, right. not only is it one of the largest cities in Britain, it's also a major centre of, of industry. It's, it's famous for steel. We're told there's also chemical and engineering works yeah. there. So I know it's it's a conceit, so we can still have characters to follow. <laughs> uh, but apparently this wasn't hit with a full counter-value attack. It may it might have been targeted, but something could have happened with the bomb. It could have malfunctioned. It could have been a dud. A fratricide or, fratricide or something. something. Um, that's one, one of my favorite books in this field. Is uh, It's a fiction book, War Day. Mm. And it's essentially it's an oral history of after a, a limited nuclear attack happens. And that's one of the issues they, they mention a lot is this guy was in New York City. And a bomb should have mm. hit him, right? He should have been at ground zero. But it overshot its target, and it ended up in New Jersey to, to the the north. He has to deal with the radiation and the blast effect. But New York itself is the city is like Manhattan is spared mm-hmm. a direct attack. So it could have been Sheffield would have been a similar thing. But I have some more details on that when we start talking about the blast as portrayed okay. in the film. Then we have the breakdown. There are moments where our Avengers team in the in the bunker are trying to coordinate responses because this bomb that goes off in crew is a ground burst attack. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure, they don't really describe why that's a ground burst attack. Maybe you have no. a, a sense why that would be ground burst. Because air burst is what you use against population centers, things that are softer targets. But why Why would you use a ground attack on crew? I mean, crew is a fairly large train station, but so do many northern cities. So, I mean, there's not really a, any, watching it from an academic point of view, I think it's just so they could portray the effects of fallout in the most stark and irresistible way this idea of maybe the narrator has described how it has sucked up a whole bunch of dust thrown it into the atmosphere and that is now falling and we see the officials in the bunker they're not really sure where all the bombs have dropped but they believe that yes this ground burst has happened at crew and they discuss where the prevailing winds are People in this area, and they look at the map, are already dead for sure. Probably everyone else in this area is dead. I think it's a way of really hammering home this idea of what does fallout look like if a war actually happened and Britain were attacked. I think at one point they mentioned on the on the screen 500 million tons of dust in the air. I don't know mm. if that's it's probably not just from crew. No, it must be. I think that, that was the full 3,000 megaton reciprocal nuclear exchange so our avengers team in the bunker as you said they're trying to figure out and coordinate where they should send uh relief the one thing they seem like they're stocked well in is cigarettes there are a lot of cigarettes so they're in this bunker this uh, (laughs) basement uh i think they've shut off the ventilation or someone finally figures out we should probably stop fallout dust being sucked in here meanwhile they're all smoking away it looks almost more toxic than the outside yeah I think the smoking ban in Britain came into place when I was in my first year at university. We stopped being able to smoke in pubs and all of a sudden the air felt clearer. So it's really weird for me to see people smoking in films at the best of times. Right. But in this film, it's it's to the absolute extreme. Well, then I suppose they don't really have much to live for and they know it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're aware of what the government's resources are for post-attack. So I suppose smoke them if you got them. They're <laughs> all puffing away in the shelter. You Pretty almost much. can't see some of the characters through this thick. Uh, and it's not just dust. It's, it is them adding to their own smoky environment. Uh, in- including Jimmy smoking in front of uh, Ruth as a pregnant yes. lady. Uh, again, I- things things were different in the 80s. Pretty much. Uh, I did ask my, my... So I was born 
1985, so the year after this film came out, and I asked my, my parents, like, do you remember either watching this film or at least the context in which this film came out? Were you particularly worried about nuclear war? Do you remember reading the pamphlets? My dad just kind of shook his head. I went, no, not really. <laughs> just carried <laughs> on. Um, but it's, there's other aspects in this film that make me amazed I'm still here because, yes, uh, smoking around pregnant women, drinking, all those kind of things, <laughs> seemed to, to, uh, people didn't seem to hold back. Right. Different, different time. They're trying to coordinate this response. Mm. And a lot of it is people yelling at each other because they can't get even a hold over the radio of the people who have the trucks to yes. coordinate. And there's just fires, there's firestorm everywhere. And you really see this breakdown of, of the plans that were initiated ahead of time. And essentially, you see martial law being in place. You see looters starting to attack people's homes. Ruth, she leaves the shelter and she goes away from her family, yeah. and she goes, I guess, maybe looking for Jimmy. That's what I assumed as well. She, but she doesn't speak at any point in this. She's just numb from the horror of what's happened. So she goes away, and then looters enter Ruth's family's home and basically kill her parents. Yeah, well, what police there are discover them, assume they have killed Ruth's family, and I think they're taken off to be shot, which we don't see, but that is the assumption. So I think it's interesting here is the, if the government planners watch this film, even at this stage of it where society itself is breaking down, the government's plans aren't working, it is turning to this kind of war of all against all in a kind of classic Hobbesian sense of anarchy, the planners would have watched this and gone, yeah, we agree. And had that had been the assumption in the British government, British government's planning and preparation for nuclear war almost from the beginning of the nuclear age. So I mentioned that... Um, the Strath Committee's report from 1955. I dug out one. It's a little extended quote here, but I think it's, it's interesting for this. So this idea of breakdown, that's a, a term that specifically comes from British planning. There was the assumption that we will see war coming. There will be a brief period of war, and then we will have breakdown followed by post-attack survival phase. Hmm. To describe the breakdown, part of the report says... In some parts of the country, particularly as several bombs fell in the same area, there might be complete chaos for a time and civilian control would collapse. In such circumstances, the local military commander would have to be prepared to take over for responsibility for the maintenance of law and order and for the administration of government. He would, if called upon, exercise his existing common law powers to take whatever steps, however drastic, he considered necessary to restore order. He would have to direct the operations of various civil agencies, including the police, the civil defence services and the fire services. In areas less badly built, the civil authorities might still be able to retain control, but only with the support of the armed services. So this is official British planning, and this is chopped and changed across the decades, but that core remains of there is an assumption here of everything is literally going to break down. Nothing is going to function properly. Even on an individual psychological level, people are going to be overwhelmed. And the plan is to essentially take whatever survives, whatever official apparatus of government on the regional levels. We're going to give you the legal authority. And prior to the attack, we hear on the radio that the British government has passed some Emergency Powers Act, which is basically going to give the local commissioner total authority to do whatever he wants. Anyone who's left who's in the security services are going to be empowered to basically have summary executions or detention for whatever crimes they see fit, right. all in an attempt to restore any kind of public order. And whatever is left, whatever able-bodied people we have, we're going to try and have some kind of recovery effort, maybe, 
But in this stage of the film, we are firmly in the breakdown phase. We see the reality of this kind of brutal system being imposed, uh, even by well-meaning people. We've seen these civil servants before the bomb. They're not evil psychopaths. Right. There is no doubting the chaotic environment in which they're working and the draconian measures they're using. And this is the government's plan. This is the best they can come up with because they know if nuclear war comes, there is no active or passive measure that we can take that is reasonably going to mitigate the effects. Because of those emergency powers, you see rioters shot outside of a food mm. storage facility. They talk about the only people that will get food are those that essentially are not sick with radiation and are able-bodied enough to do agriculture yes. and work. A lot of this is involving taking bodies and burning them. Like that type of, of, of effort, only people that can do that work will get food. Work becomes the new currency. Right. Work and food. Britain obviously doesn't have a ready availability of firearms. You get, you get the sense that anyone with access to a gun who is probably male and able-bodied is going to be able to survive at least for a while in this environment if they have the lack of scruples to do what is, inverted commas, necessary right. to survive. I think we very much see that, fittingly going back to Thomas Hobbes, this idea of what a true anarchy would look like. And it is this survival of the fittest. I think they use that phrase exactly in, in the film at one point. Right. At, the, at one point, we see a detention center where people who have been presumably looting or something have been held. And I love that the detention center and, is at a country club. Right, exactly. Because, well, well, make do and mend, uh, that kind of thing. And someone who's being held complains because he sees a guard walking past and the guard is in a traffic warden's uniform with a face covered. And this is where we get the iconic image that was used to promote the film. And the guy yells, yeah, I, I don't want to be detained by a bloody traffic warden. <laughs> but he is paid for by the government. He is in uniform and he is able-bodied and someone's given a gun. So in this landscape, that is the law. Right. And as long as you're on the right side of it, I think this is a very credible scenario. Let's move to our last stage here, which are the long-term effects. One of the things about this movie that I think is really interesting is, is that it doesn't just end a couple days after the bomb and you do, you're left to know, you're left to guess what people will do. You see this years after. Yeah, time starts jumping. So, so far we've seen this, the, the crisis and then the attack unfold in terms of days or even minutes between um, uh, jumps. Now time has this interesting effect. So we're skipping further ahead to see what happens. But I think it's also a sense of time stops having meaning in the same way as it did before mm. the attack. So at one point, I think the Ruth's parents in the shelter talk about what time is it? Half to morning or night? Oh, it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> we kind of get that sense of it here where yeah, we see these snapshots of uh, what was hilariously called in the British planning the survival phase. Mm-hmm. Meaning not that the country would survive, but I think that the basic task would be survival for anyone who's had the fortune or misfortune of surviving that initial attack. Now it has to their whole life is going to be consumed with just the basic task of carrying on. So before the attack, we heard Jimmy complaining about he has he he's bored, <laughs> he's not satisfied at work. We're watching, going, oh my god. Man, you you got it so good. Yeah. You don't know how lucky you are. You don't know what's coming. Uh, don't complain about being bored. I, th I think its depiction of this survival phase is interesting. And also the fact that it's, it fully confronts the idea of, of nuclear winter. Mm -hmm. So with the best information that seemed to be available to the filmmakers, and this is where it becomes lots of from, this is what would happen to, this is what might happen. 
the language of the narration kind of changes. We firstly see the proper long-term effects of nuclear winter, and also uniquely we see it in Britain. I can't think of any, there aren't many films set in Britain that deal with nuclear weapons. There's maybe one other comparison to this film, which is an animated one, uh, but even that doesn't show these long-term effects. It's kind of, no pun intended, chilling, but it's also oddly fascinating. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned about you know not knowing how good you have it. Uh, when I was young and my parents complained that I wouldn't do my chores, and I complained about it, they would always say, well, at least taking the trash out is not as bad as a nuclear winter. Right. Um, I'm just kidding. Do you think that influenced your career choices in any way? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. My folks, <laughs> my folks are not uh, nuclear people until I decided to make them listen to each podcast episode. Sure. Um, so I'll go through really quickly here all the different things that I see um, with this long-run time frame. Plus 22 days, rats are going to start arriving in the cities. Those that were killed... They're dead, but the rats from outside start coming in, and you see an outbreak of cholera, dysentery, and typhoid fever. You start seeing people, uh, raiders looting uh, people's houses, and, you, and it mentions 10 to 20 million corpses unburied throughout the country. Which is impressive, because I looked up the statistics in Britain in 1984, I think was the population was 56.4 million. Oh, jeez. So presuming 10 to 15 probably died in the blast, and we now have 20 million just unburied corpses. Yeah. Uh, that's a, a hefty section of the population right there. Well, they say um, four months after the attack, there are between 17 and 38 million dead from the blast, heat, and fallout. That's a, Which is yeah, a that's, range, for one thing. It's, yeah. I, well, I guess... There were limits. Right. I guess even even in the movie, which they could just say a number, um, yeah. they don't know uh, how many there are because they can't figure it out. Plus five weeks, there are. There's no power. There's no water. There's no sanitation. Courts are able to essentially, um, you know, kill anyone without a trial. Uh, there's no food. There's no fuel. This is the peak level of fallout death. People start to move to the countryside. They talk about Buxton, where Ruth is part of this group. This is something that the war game also has, where people in the countryside are forced to have these outsiders, these strangers, come to their houses. Because these houses aren't destroyed. Uh, they, they might have a little bit of food, but they're not, they certainly probably didn't plan to have an extra 15 people in their yeah. studio apartment. At six weeks, you see dead sheep hanging around. Bob, who's a friend of Jimmy's, meets up with Ruth, and they start eating these dead uh, sheep that they find. Plus four months, so you, you get a big jump there. Agriculture is a big priority, but there's no light. There's no f heat from the sun because of the nuclear winter. There's no crops for them to be able to eat. So harvest is such a big deal, but we're going to harvest. There's things can't grow. And then you see Ruth finally delivers her baby in this scene, which still haunts me. She's it Basically, she self-births her, her child in a manger. While this is happening, there's a dog that just wants to murder her, but it's chained up, and it's just barking and barking and barking. That's how her child enters. And she has to cut the cord with her teeth. Oh, that wasn't the U.S. showing of this movie. Really? It surprised me. That was the one thing they just decided, you know what, everything else is fine, but we can't show that. Oh, the, yes, the reality of, of women's bodies, that was obviously too far. <laughs> yeah, um, but again, a little bit on the nose, uh, December 25th, Christmas time, this baby is in a manger. You start to see how bad winter gets. Many uh, young and older people start to die. Ten months passed. Ruth starts to s steal food from various places because she needs to get food to feed her baby. But she just ends up stealing grain 
and she rolls the grain and meals. Yeah, trying to make flour by hand. As a modern audience, at the time, you'd watch this going, actually, yeah, how do you make flour? <laughs> oh, I suppose you have to grind something against the floor, right? Right. <laughs> it was, for all, it being harrowing, it did make you kind of think, how would you have to survive in this kind of situation? So I, I, I mill a lot of flour uh, because I, I brew my own beer a lot. Okay. And we use the spent grains and we put it into a KitchenAid, like a blender that has a, an attachment. Okay. Which is, a, you know, KitchenAid's cost money, the blender attachment costs money, the miller, yes. and all these different things. I'm like, yeah, I could do that. Oh, wait, no, I don't have electricity. Do and my kitchen, I don't know, my KitchenAid's pretty sturdy. It might actually survive. There's no crank or anything for me to use. Well, I, I, have, I have a mixer that uh, it broke, a KitchenAid mixer. I took it apart. Talking about the Cold War, I had to get new parts, but it turned out the parts I had were all made in West Germany. <laughs> difficult to find parts made in a country that no longer exists. Yeah. So I can believe that, but it was so sturdy, I can believe that thing would have survived a nuclear war. Cockroaches and KitchenAid mixers. So one year past the attack, we see Ruth kind of bartering for food from this guy who is sitting underneath a gigantic ad for life insurance. And you see a yeah. picture of a happy baby. Such a juxtaposition with Ruth caring for her child, negotiating for food from a guy who's got a basket of dead rats. I th was it implied? So again, because we're using a female character, she was having to to sell her body for rats in this post-apocalyptic. That is exactly what I think happened. Yeah. Because I read another take on that, which is that oh, oh, some the most act of kindness she gets is someone gives her dead rats to eat. And I was like, I, I think you've misread that scene. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It could be, I think it could go either way, but um, either way, that, that's what the food is. But yeah, this, this whole section where we keep jumping forward, I think it's interesting. A lot of it is done without any dialogue. We're just getting snapshots and imagery and we know, we understand the bleakness of this environment and her specific existence with her daughter almost without any explicit words to, to describe it. It is entirely through our own empathy and the, the imagery that we're given. It is a powerful part of this movie. There's no soundtrack to it. There's not a lot of... No. And so Ruth's uh, child, who I think his name... They don't say it directly, I believe, but I think his name is Jane. Her name is mm -hmm. Jane. We see her start to continue going on three to eight years after the attack. There's this grim image uh, text on the screen that says that population levels have gone to medieval levels of 4 to 11 million people left in the United Kingdom. Mm. Ten years on, we see Ruth and her daughter working in agricultural fields. And then Ruth dies very unceremoniously on a bed, and the daughter tries to wake her up. Uh, and at this point, it's fascinating because not only do you see civilization breakdown, but language. This is interesting because, yeah, we see apparently nuclear weapons have a, are a threat not just to the structures of society, buildings life but yeah as you say language itself so we see ruth's daughter only has a couple of words and they're not fully recognizable words she seems to know work and one or two others but she also uh, shortly after this comes across other people her age and they have a kind of conversation in this very broken english where they're trying to get something from their daughter and they think this is something like a Giza, Giza, and it's clearly meant to be give that here or something mm. like that. We also see this fascinating image where Ruth's daughter is in what amounts to a school at this stage where she and several other kids are plonked in front of an old television with an old VHS tape of a an educational program about uh, the alphabet. I don't know how they're powering the TV, but apparently it has power. Probably coal. <laughs> and I think when, when Ruth's child then uh, watches Ruth die a little bit later privately, 
she seems to just completely accept it once she realizes what has happened. And Ruth at this stage looks like she's 70 rather than 30. And then, but when she dies, though, there is that bird book that she took from Jimmy because Jimmy was a bird guy. Yeah, which she has been carrying around one of her few possessions throughout this whole nuclear hellscape. She, uh, we, we see her at several points. This is one thing she tries to save, uh, I suppose, as a, a memory of uh, the father of her child and the life that she expected to have. But her daughter doesn't take that. She takes her, I think she steals a comb and maybe a couple other things, but she doesn't, she leaves the book. It no longer has any meaning for her. Yeah, this film doesn't miss an opportunity to kind of turn the emotional life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we see scenes of children taking blankets and sweaters and pulling threads away to, I guess, I think they make fishnets with them or something. Yeah, I, I didn't really. The film isn't trying to, I don't think, go out of its way to explain everything literally. It's just giving you a general sense. Exactly. And again, the imagery, a bit on the nose here, perhaps, of literally unraveling the threads of a of a pre-attack society for this new post-attack reality. Um, but yeah, it seems like there's a cottage industry of child labor, certainly. Let's nail it here. Final terrible note. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thirteen years on. It looks like civilization is starting to build itself back up in some weird way. The relative things you think are great. A coal locomotive that's used for agriculture. And it's like, fantastic. This is exciting. We're, start, we're starting to have the steam age again. And we see, we see coal miners, which in the 1980s in northern England, which is where this is set, coal mines were being shot left, right and center. So I think there's a little bit of humor on the part of the filmmakers. <laughs> of, well, at least coal's coming back. Uh, she tries to steal some food with her group of friends, and one of them is shot. Her friend and Jan start to fight over the, the food, and there ends up being a rape. Jan's daughter becomes pregnant. She eventually is in a situation where her she's about to give birth. She can't even get the words out. I think she just says, like, baby coming, baby coming, mm -hmm. to this nurse who does not care pretty much because she's trying to deal with other people there. She's screaming while she's in labor. The baby is born, but in a juxtaposition to when she was born, there is no crying. Mm. We don't see the baby, but it's clear the baby is dead, and it's shown, given to Ruth's child, and there's just a, an open mouth, freeze frame scream. Yeah, I think the implication... So I think at certain points, this film plays with genre and slips into kind of horror. And I think this is one bit where it plays with body horror. So the deliberately brutal scene of Ruth giving birth, and in this case, her daughter, I think the implication is we don't see the, the child, but I think the implication is this is a the second generation born in an irradiated landscape, and there is some kind of horrible birth defect. And we can only see that on her, on, on the face of this you know, new mother. And... Yeah, it, uh, the film doesn't doesn't pull its punches at this stage. No, and then roll credits. Completely silently as well. Yeah, we're left we're left to see what happens. Uh, we're left to guess essentially, but I bet you can draw uh, your own conclusions about what that but, future looks like. So, but while that is happening, it's like one final just kick in the stomach before we leave you and have end credits is what listening to this happen, listening to this woman giving birth, and in the next bed is uh, is Jimmy, right? Oh, is that supposed to be Jimmy? Well, so I was watching this on a, a reasonably low-quality version. Yeah. Um, 
but I remember the first time I watched, I thought that was the implication that so he's he looks also like he's aged fifty years. Ah. But his face, he has a thousand yard stare, and he's just listening. He doesn't realize he's listening to his own daughter giving birth, and he doesn't even look like he cares anyway about this human being suffering next to him. I think that's like they're accidentally reunited. I I think that could be it. I'm gonna have to go back and look at that. I did not catch that. Uh, ooh. Yeah, it's like one final, and then it's just end credits with, as you said, no music, and that silence says more, I think, than anything. Plus, you know, what music would you pick to put over the over the top of that? That's a difficult choice. It's like when uh, the West Wing would have like a really sad episode, and then with the plinky plonky happy music, and it was like, whoa, guys, the tone is wrong. My wife and I just talked about that last week. That exact thing, because it doesn't matter what the episode ends with, but then it's like, yeah. Exactly, it's just a bit weird. That's really funny. That's the movie. Hopefully people have made it all the way through. But uh, let's get super critical about it, because I think there's some interesting things uh, to discuss here. Uh, I've got five points, but feel free to, we can talk a little about some of the things here, and some of that we've already covered. So like the first one, one email we received from one of our listeners, Chris, uh, he asked why Sheffield was even a target in this film. Why was it chosen and not like London or a bigger city, something that's more recognizable? It's not a military target, but why was that chosen? We talked a little bit about that. So thanks for that question. And you can send your questions for future episodes if you go to supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. Talked a little bit about counterforce and countervalue targeting. We Counterforce would be using weapons against military target. You want to take out, if you're doing a first strike, someone's arsenal so it can't get you. Or you try to get as many as you can in case there's a shooting war so that their next wave of attacks would be smaller than the previous ones. So I guess Sheffield is interesting because it's near a military base, somewhat near the Royal Air Force Base. In a way, you can argue the fact that Sheffield has these industries, steel, engineering, chemical. Does that count then as a counter force target because it's the means of continuing warfare? I think so. When the British planners approached this question, they were viewing it firstly from the point of view of World War II and considering the extent to which war itself had changed because of mm. the nuclear revolution. And one assumption in that was war is going to compress from years in which we're going to have this attritional battle in which you have to summon the total effort of the state to that. At least the kinetic phase is going to be compressed into something that's maybe a week at most, probably days or hours long. So the assumption was yes, this would probably be a target because you would have fairly unrestrained attacks. There would be no real reason to hold back. But at the same time, there wasn't an assumption that these industries are going to be useful in the long term because the war itself is going to be so short. You're not going to have a chance. For example, Britain's plan to use its own medium-range bomber force called for the bombers to go and deliver one bomb not come back and rearm. The assumption Mm. was even if you survive, there's going to be no point to reload because there's going to be no one left to reload you with a second bomb, even if we had intelligence about what target to go hit second. Wow. I think the idea of what what is the nature of strategy in in the missile and nuclear age, I think Sheffield is clearly going to be a target because you're not going to want to leave your opponent with any industry left. But at the same time, industry is going to become redundant because hmm. you're going to fight the war with whatever you had on day one. There is going to be no rearming, right? Which was certainly a challenge facing NATO, obviously, with the 
the time it would take to convention to redeploy conventional forces from America to Europe, for example, and the unwillingness to keep large armies in being in in uh, in NATO. Yeah, these, these definitely these are concepts that don't uh, match well with the geography and the the time during this this particular film. But it also Sheffield makes sense a little bit because it's it's a large it's a large city. They, according to the movie, it's the fourth largest city in in the country. They say at the time the numbers were five hundred and forty five thousand people, and it had those industry levels. But there's also some behind the scenes stuff, which I think is interesting. Another reason why Sheffield was chosen by the filmmakers was because it had a nuclear-free zone policy. From a movie standpoint, this is a place that has declared itself because of its politics. It has nothing to do with nuclear weapons. It's, it's, I don't know if that's enforceable, but it declares that it won't be involved in this process. And still, it remains a target. Very much a reflection of the battles over nuclear weapons in domestic British politics at the time in which this film was made. So a internal battles within the Labour Party between unilateralists and reluctant supporters of nuclear deterrence. Some labor councils, as you say, declared their areas would be nuclear-free zones. There was a surge in support of CND, which had kind of languished for years as society became more aware of nuclear issues and protesting against things like American deployment of crews in Pershing too, and uh, Britain's own acquisition of Trident. So I think the just from practical point of view as well, the fact that the Sheffield had a Labour council at the time would probably have given the filmmakers access right. in order to make this film. But also, it yes, you're right, it shows that even those who are against nuclear weapons are going to be affected. And at one point we see a protest against the what we know as the approaching war. And we see a CND activist as the voice of reason warning the population that this is coming. Doesn't matter if you're against for or against nuclear weapons, this is going to affect us all. And of course, CND turned out to be absolutely correct <laughs> and are the voice of reason. And eventually we see them, bun- you know, the crowd shouts them down. Some guy says, uh, go back to Russia. Yeah. Uh, later, we see the same speaker being rounded up by the government as a known subversive. And of course, it's the wise person warning the village about the approaching flood that we don't listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the film setting it in Sheffield is also an interesting reflection of the politics of the time. And I think they, they play there's a certain amount of black humour in. So this is Yorkshire. This is, um, if you watch Game of Thrones, Sean Bean's accent, which then becomes the accent of all of the North. Yes. Uh, this is the accent they use. So ah, we, okay. some lines that made me completely non-intentionally chuckle. Um, you know, so when the bomb drops, Jimmy's friend, and I'm not going to do an impression, but he goes, um, Jesus Christ, they've done it. They've bloody done it which in a northern accent is unintentionally funny. <laughs> and I'm not finding nuclear war funny. Please don't at me on Twitter. But I'm just saying, <laughs> I remember watching it in class and everyone burst into laughter as a relief uh, from the tension. But uh, setting it in the north, I think, also gives it a very interesting character that um, if it were in London with kind of southern accents, I don't think it would have that same type of universality in a strange way. Huh. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that they use this as the location. Uh, and as, and as, as you mentioned, the fact that there was a labor council in charge uh, of the town, elected to that town, they got access. Wouldn't be the case if it was elsewhere. So the second thing that I think we have here to talk about, the bomb as it was shown on the screen. Did they get it right? What's it look like? Uh, and I think this is a little bit hard to do because the movie jumps around with a lot of stock footage of, of nuclear testing. Yeah. And But I use our trusty nuke map. Basically, it's like Google Earth, but you get to plug in... Uh, location and what type of bomb and where you launch it and it will tell you based on the science and the formulas and the algorithms that we have what would happen 
which is a great tool if anyone is doing undergraduate teaching. I say I, yeah. it, is, it contextualizes these weapons very well. It's also a good way to get a class engaged is, depending on people's sensibilities, I had one student didn't particularly like this once, but you call out to a class, where do you live? Do you want to <laughs> see what happens? Oh, <laughs> Put boy. it on the big screen. It's a, it's a very useful uh, tool, that, certainly, from an educational point of view. Uh, I'm trying to do one of the, my side projects is I'm starting to collect a database of any time a bomb is used in one of these films. Okay. If I can get details for it and try to um, have a website where it uses nuke map and it shows what the reality of the bomb versus what's shown mm. on the screen. So I'm, I'm working on that. That'll take me a little bit of time. But for this one, I used a one uh, megaton airburst over with a ground zero of uh, Tinsley Viaduct, which I guess is like a bridge near Sheffield. Mm -hmm. Because that everything that I found online, uh, according to the, the, the described in the film and the script, that that's the ground zero for the bomb that's the closest to Sheffield, and I think this is just northeast uh, of the town. And according to uh, Nuke Map, uh, there would be in today's population numbers about three hundred and fourteen thousand estimated fatalities. I know these don't match up with the population numbers because it's a couple decades later, but that's way over half of the town with that five hundred and forty-five thousand people uh, estimated injuries. 432,000 people. Uh, so this is clearly, even though this is not right on top of the town, with an airburst, it's still a huge amount of impact. The movie, I think, does a pretty good job of like the varying phases of a nuclear mm. bomb. So you get the mushroom cloud, you get the, the, but first you get the very bright light, the thermal flash. So people get the burns on the side of their faces. Those that are looking directly at it go blind. You have that flash in the film, but then you have that little bit of time waiting, little period, couple seconds, blast comes in. It, does, it doesn't just have a giant bomb, kind of like the Terminator 2 detonation, uh, which I think it's, it's always it's used as the most accurate. They say it's the most accurate, uh, but there's some issues we had on that episode that we did um, about that. But you get, according to Nuke Map, if that's the, if that's the ground zero, there would be an, a blast wave uh, that would extend out to 4.32 miles or 7 kilometers at 5 psi, which is enough force to knock over most non-concrete buildings, any sort of residential area. So Sheffield is very much within that area. So I think that they do a good job there of placing the bomb right where it needs to be so that you can mm -hmm. see the effects and still have a story to tell. According to Nuke Map, there would be out to 7.82 miles or 12.6 kilometers, third degree burns from thermal radiation. Some of those burns might require amputation and, and pretty serious uh, medical problems. That's a pretty far out, and that would be directly where we'd see all the impacts there. So kudos to the research team here. Uh, you see the firestorms, which would develop on wooden buildings. I don't think the firestorm is as bad as it might be, but I don't know what Sheffield's area is built with. Because a lot of times when you see firestorms, it's because of wooden structures that are closely packed yeah. together. I don't know what it would be like. Not from the area, though I'm visiting it next weekend. Oh. There'll be a lot of stone and brick buildings. So it'll be very working class, very Victorian. Uh, we see like terraced houses that Jimmy's family lived in. Um, I think there would be fairly solid construction. Of so the there, would, there would be fires, type. but it wouldn't be a firestorm necessarily. Exactly. Um, so like the protect and survive advice would probably be accurate that you'll lose your windows and you'll probably almost all lose your roofs. But you still have uh, some mass to protect you from radiation if you follow our advice and right. build your fallout shelter and everything else. So that's what's next, uh, the fallout radiation. Now, it gets hard to tell because they don't exactly say where they are, but so because the, the Air Force Base is really far. It's 17 miles from where they're at. So that's too much for prompt radiation, which is the first blast of, of radiation that if you have the 
the Tinsley Viaduct Airburst, uh, there would only be prompt radiation up to 1.5 uh, miles or uh, 2.82 kilometers, but that ground burst that we talk about. So now I'm shifting to the ground burst, which is at Crewe, uh, with a city that is uh, southwest uh, of Sheffield. So that gets hit, and according to sources that I've seen, Crewe was hit because it's a small arms hub. So there's okay. a lot of, of conventional weapons that would be used there. So I'm assuming for that one, and I'm just kind of taking a leap here, uh, just to make it a little bit different, 150 kiloton bomb. Because you see at one point, they write down on the on a whiteboard, the, our, our Avengers team in the basement, yes. 150 kiloton. So I'm assuming that might be one of the ones that was used there. I'm just making this up. So if, they, if anyone has an ex- exactly what kind of bomb was used at crew, if you, even if it's 150 kiloton, which is way smaller than a megaton, as described in the film, they would they would produce enough radiation that would be over a thousand rads per hour onto Sheffield, which is way more than you would need to cause immediate radiation sickness and likely death. It's far enough away that it wouldn't kill people immediately from prompt radiation, but the amount of fallout effects that we see described would be fairly accurate if the winds are blowing just the right way so that it hits onto Sheffield. So I, I would give this movie a pretty good accurate representation. I don't know what you think in terms of the science behind it, but they do a pretty good job. There's homework there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I specialize more in the in the history and kind of nuclear strategy side of things. So I, I, I try to listen at conferences when scientists and engineers are speaking rather than thinking I can interject. <laughs> but I mean, it, it definitely follows everything that I know with my base of knowledge. And I thought it was, I thought it was a very wise choice because the point of it is to show what the official advice would be, what you should do in this situation, mm-hmm. and just and the fatalism of how little it's going to help you. So much like in the United States, civil defense in Britain, part of it was about, well, you have to do something and you don't want to be completely fatalistic. But there was also a cynical side of it of, well, we're going to do civil defense to keep the population calm, keep them supporting our defense policy, which we believe is the only way to Mm. stop nuclear war in the absence of nuclear disarmament, which Britain's bomb was initiated in the 40s by a Labour government who wanted multilateral nuclear disarmament, but in its absence, they said, well, Britain better have a bomb so we can deter an attack. And I think the whole film, the plan is, it is an interesting point of agreement um, between the two. A very honest depiction of the effects where they obviously diverge is your conclusions you draw on that. Do you have deterrence or do you have disarmament? But I think that the honesty in portraying the science of it as best they can is is commendable and one of the reasons it's so effective. They do their homework there. But let's now go to your specialty, which is, let's talk about civil defense. There's a system, an alert system called Bikini State. My expertise, which as it is, is not on on these types of systems. So I only come from what I see from research for this episode. But according to what I see, the Bikini State was an alert system used by the United Kingdom from 1970 to 2006. I guess it was eventually replaced by a a different type of active warning system. This is also used for terrorism and civil disorder. uh, And the word bikini was chosen randomly by a computer. But it's similar to DEFCON systems in the United States, where it's like an elevated levels uh, of of alert systems. But the fascinating thing, I thought this was very interesting, is it's not nationwide, which is, or military-wide, which is what DEFCON systems work, but it's military units. So maybe just the Air Force or... This, this particular smaller unit of the military or even a building has varying levels of this bikini alert systems. Mm. And it's colored uh, system is, uh, there's a white which system, which is everything is fine and dandy, black, possible threat involved, black special, high likelihood, but no defined target, amber, which is what we see in the movie, 
high alert, likely transition to war, which is transition mm-hmm. to war, I guess, is an actual plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll, I, I'm sure you'll talk more about that. And then red, which is an indication that there's an attack underway. It's a little troubling that white is the one where everything's fine and dandy and black <laughs> uh, gets a little bit worse. Be that as it may, these, these concepts that are described in the film, because uh, at one point you just see bikini state, amber, and you're like, well, what does that mean? That these are real mm. things that are that are there, so they they don't make up stuff. Even the movie I thought was fascinating. They don't make up locations. They don't make up names for uh, weapon systems. They call them, you know, tornadoes, or they'll call them the USS Kitty Hawk, the USS yeah. uh, in, uh, Los Angeles. Most of the time, those in, in films you come up with some other name so you don't get in trouble. This movie yeah. doesn't does not care. No, there's no. Um... Phone numbers starting with five 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 or anything exactly. like that. And I looked up the Los Angeles, and you know, I knew the Kitty Hawk, but I looked up the Los Angeles, and yeah, it was a real SSN in service at the time. You can imagine it would have been used on that kind of mission, as they say in in the background. And and so yes, yeah, so like to so the civil defense plant, I think that authenticity really helps the film because a lot of it rings very true in terms of what British plans would have been. British war plans were very much based on this idea of, they always considered the possibility of a, a pure bolt from the blue attack. The, the, you know, the war you didn't see coming, uh, some of that was a knock from the Cuban Missile Crisis, which kind of seemed to come upon the, the world much more quickly than planners assumed. And that kind of made you think, well, maybe you can get into the situation much faster. But generally the assumption was, a major war will be preceded by a period of increasing international tensions, a recognition of we can't maintain a constant state of alert. We can't be on a total war footing all the time. The deterrent forces can be on constant alert. Therefore, the whole British state was going to kick into gear of increasingly, increasingly serious effort, if you like, as situations seemed to to progress closer and closer to war. And it's one phase of that was, for example, transition to war. All of this was collected in something called the Government War Book, which collected all the individual government departments' responsibilities and actions they would take in the run-up to a war. And we see that in the film with uh, uh, Clive Sutton. He opens his war book. Absolutely. And, and we see some of what the preparations look like. So when the government thinks, oh, it could happen at any time now, all the emergency services are evacuated out of the city, so that they'll at least survive the blast and there will be fire engines to use for the anticipated firestorm. Whether or not there'll be water is another matter. We see how the government has stockpiled some food and water, as have the shelters. Not all the shelters for for government would be fully stocked all the time. These would be gradually staffed up and stocked up. Mm -hmm. So many different aspects of the film, right? And things like you say, the depiction of specific alerts, how a message would be communicated through to a bunker from... Uh, the early warning radar, the limited time they'd have. The little details are right, and I think the big underlying picture is also right. The kind of philosophy that underpinned British war planning in general, and civil defence in particular, right down to the undercurrent of fatalism, not because of any moral desire to leave the population to it, but just a recognition of that has been there from the very beginning. This is a very interesting snapshot of Britain at that time. It raises lots of interesting questions of extent of which preparations were being made and also the fatalism that underpinned some of it and i think the honest problem of you probably have to do something to prepare for nuclear war but really is there anything you can actually do and the end listeners are interested uh four years beforehand there was a very interesting bbc uh current affairs news program called panorama which is still running but uh which did a hour-long episode on british civil defense uh, this is in 1980. It's available on YouTube to watch. 
It features a young Jeremy Paxman, who's a journalist who's still going. Um, and it was an honest uh, look at civil defence and a lack of preparation. This this programme made an argument of we should spend lots, lots more money and perhaps we actually can do something to make the end of the world not quite so bad. But I think the film is four years later. It shows that these problems were still relevant in British politics and were never really addressed. And I don't think even were addressed right up to the end of the Cold War when we just quietly started dismantling everything. The bunkers that we did make, which were never that many, were sold off. Hmm. Uh, there's one for sale near me in Northern Ireland now. It's been on sale for a year and a half. It's half a million pounds. I'm kind of tempted. If I had half a million pounds, at least, you know, it's zombie proof and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I was, yeah, I was going to say, if you have that kind of money, maybe we'll talk about a sponsorship here uh, no, for the podcast. No. PhD student, I'm afraid. Oh, yeah, it's different budgets. And a dream. Well, some of the other things I think are interesting to mention uh, in terms of this transition to war, this concept of a slow buildup. Some of the there's a lots of steps there, um, but some of the steps that we see in the movie that they follow through. One of which is hospitals are cleared, so that they're ready. Uh, people that are there maybe in hospice care, like the grandmother, Ruth's grandmother, that hospital gets cleared. So you see that known subversives are jailed without trial. To stop sabotage, yeah. so you see the CND people would be jailed. Government takes over airwaves, so no more weather channel. Yep, the the BBC in the event of war was apparently would become the WTBC, which would be the Wartime Broadcasting Corporation. And in the larger regional centres of government, apparently most of them would in, included a broadcast studio. So mm. some porters, presenters, however you want to describe them, would be stationed there as a, a means of providing information to the public if anyone still had a radio. That sounds like the, the Connell Red system here in the state that we had for a long time. Basically, any public radio station would get shut down. It would send signals that you have to go to these dedicated radio stations, which on if you bought a radio during this certain time period, as in the late uh, 50s to the 60s, it would have a channel with the CD logo mm -hmm. on there, and you would have yeah. to then turn to that, and that was a dedicated line. Some of the other things uh, would be non-essential phone lines are cut off because they need those for sending yep. out emergency messages. But I can imagine the terror there, people not be able to contact their loved ones if phone lines before the crisis is, is shut off. I imagine any time here in the, in the States, maybe there's a bombing. Mm. Cell phones don't work anymore because everyone's overwhelming sure. the system. So yeah. then they always say, text, don't call. Uh, yeah. But imagine all phone lines being shut off. That's But also, so I mean, one thing the planners were worried about was, okay, each step you take in civil defense may increase your readiness, but that might also be a terrible signal yeah. to your opponent that you're preparing for war. Yep. So they were worried about not taking any steps that would be seen as uh, signs that Britain and NATO was preparing for a preemptive attack, which I think is an interesting dilemma uh, to be in um, and again it reminds me of, of the uh, some of the reasons the Soviets apparently thought in the run up to Abel Archer that the West was going to attack was they had a sense of well these are the things we would do in the run up to war and apparently they had a you know whiteboards in all their embassies they were told be on the lookout for these things they were mirror imaging there were things that the Soviets would have done that the West wouldn't have done like stockpile blood or pay for blood and they didn't realise in Britain you don't pay for blood you just donate it for free <laughs> Um, but I thought, again, it's an interesting reflection of how this crisis might actually unfold in real life. You don't want to ratchet up the escalation, but at the same time, you don't want to completely leave the population to fend for themselves. I think, um, the, I think the absolute best signal, uh, and they show this in the movie, and this is part of transition to war, is the artwork at museums right. so, gets taken away some to a secure location. Thank God. Thank God the art for that. <laughs> so that, that was part of... 
so that's in um, Peter Hennessy's book, The Secret State, which I think is the best single volume on British civil defence. Hmm. And he, he points out even in the 60s, and Britain's army in the 60s was quite a bit larger, but uh, an entire battalion was assigned to evacuate the art from London, and this would be taken to one or two quarries in the middle of nowhere. There was fully in the assumption that there would be no functioning state left afterwards, but at least we should probably save the art for... You know the giant ants that will then populate Britain will get to appreciate. <laughs> yeah, uh, and golf sunflowers or whatever so, that's been taken from the National Gallery. So if you were a KGB agent that wanted some intel, I think you should basically just place people at these yeah. museums, and then that's that's your best signal. Or watch for the evacuation of the royal family because again, oh. classic British state. We can't have the royals. Uh, constitutionally, as well, the interesting question is what would happen if there was a first strike on Parliament ah. or London. And a prime minister survived, but parliament didn't, because you would no longer command an authority, uh, <laughs> a majority in parliament. So are you technically the prime oh, minister geez. anymore? And therefore, are you authorised to uh, order a retaliation? Because the queen is technically commander-in-chief. These are some of the intricacies of British command and control <laughs> policies. <laughs> in practice, wouldn't really matter. But uh, again, part of the preparation that we don't see in this yeah. film would have been, at what point would the royals evacuated? Where would they be evacuated to? Wasn't there? Isn't there? This, isn't there a yacht? I remember there was a yacht. Normal plans would be get them to Scotland and then probably Canada, but Canada is a NATO member and probably wasn't surviving this. So Australia or New Zealand maybe survived, depending on how how wide ranging the Soviet attack was. God save the Queen from radiation. So let you want to talk a little bit about survive and protect? I think you mentioned it uh, before. This this public information effort uh, in the seventies and the eighties, which I thought one thing I thought was interesting was. It wasn't meant to be publicly known until no. there was a crisis, which exactly. I think is a huge contrast to the U.S. effort, at least during the Kennedy administration, where they developed pamphlets. It was public. Life magazine had a, a giant cover story on fallout radiation and with a letter from the president on how you can build a shelter. Like These efforts were publicly out there uh, as much as possible. And, and it yeah. seems like here there was a different take on that. Yeah, so, so part of the... The logic of American civil defense of this isn't to be successful, this is to reassure the population was a concern in the British case as well. Of We don't want our population so scared by nuclear weapons that they demand, say, disarmament, withdrawal from NATO and that kind of thing. How dare they? There was never a British equivalent of that constant information campaign of constantly updating the population as to what to do in the event of a nuclear attack. Rehearsals in schools, there was no Bert the Turtle and, and Duck and Cover. Uh, no catchy jingles. Once one of the plans at this stage that the film takes place would have been, would be okay. If conflict looks like it's at least more feasible, at some stage we will issue pamphlets, and then radio broadcasts and TV broadcasts will follow, telling people what to do. So on one hand, you can imagine that might send an escalatory signal to your opponent. As a population, if the if the government started broadcasting that, having not taken any interest at all, I would be terrified. Yeah. Rather than the intention of reassuring everyone. But this specific campaign, again, it was interesting because it became a real point around which lots of nuclear discussions and politics of the 1980s revolved. And it, even 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 today, to people who are kind of involved in defense or nuclear things generally, if you say protect and survive, you might not have seen it, but you probably knew about it. Mm -hmm. So I'd never watched the video the whole way through until I was preparing for this. No, I'll never unknow it. Um, you know, yeah. the um, the unsettling music, the animation, the soothing British voice telling you just quietly to please dispose of the corpses of 
your loved ones outside. If we are attacked by nuclear weapons, these are the warning sounds you must recognize. First, the attack warning. If an attack is expected, the sirens will sound a rising and falling note like this. Next, the fallout warning. When fallout is expected, you will hear three bangs in short succession, like this. It's, I d it was meant to be reassuring. They accidentally made it chilling as all hell. And I don't think that's just a subject matter. The uh -huh. style in which they produced it is much less reassuring than the American counterparts, which are all upbeat. It's <laughs> especially those early early Kennedy campaigns. It's, oh, if a bomb goes off, you're fine. Just duck and cover. Right. Duck images of Hiroshima and like, oh, look, these buildings weren't destroyed. Your buildings are made of concrete. You will probably be okay. They're was not that constant reassurance and, and cheeriness as to some of the materials in the British case. But at the same time, it meant we weren't being constantly lied to to the same degree. So I don't know which is better. Yeah, it's a hard one to, to make a judgment there. Um, <laughs> I, I guess eventually these were released or leaked out, the, the, the public service announcements. And one of the things I found was fascinating was these pamphlets. They went through a series of uh, iterations where the first mm -hmm. one in 63 was so vague and didn't really help anybody, but so they, re they revised it for 1964. But then you couldn't get these things. You had to buy them from right. some, some office. And the, the very idea that you would sell these things, which were meant to protect your people. I, I have a, a poster in my wall here that my wife is nice enough to let me have here, which says, you know, go to your local CD office. You could protect yourself from fallout radiation, get a pamphlet. Like, we, we'll send these things, we'll make them available. But in the British case, they would not be publicly available until there was a crisis. But I do see some logic in that. I guess the logic was people will read these things and just get scared. So they won't, they won't retain the information. But if I sit down in front of you and I give you a pamphlet and I say, read this thing because in the next 72 hours it's going to save your life, that might be a little bit more of an effective campaign. But then that requires yeah. someone to sit down and read this thing and, and just not, you know, pee their pants. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was cynical in the sense of we don't want to disseminate this because people will scrutinize this and realize how completely ineffective these measures are. I yeah. think it was meant to be an honestly meant reassuring effort and hopefully would save some lives. So telling people in the immediate weeks after, don't go outside, you know, very worst thing you can do is get in a car for example the right. car offers no protection drive if you must if you're in the open drive to the nearest building and get in there and hunker down that was good advice and protect and survive but again the government was under no illusions about people's long-term prospects particularly if it was a widespread attack like we see in this film actually i think the imperial war museum recently reissued some of the pamphlets as a i think it was its anniversary of the original 
hmm. campaign or whatever, um, wherever it was. So these these things are still available. And I think the original pamphlet's available online anyway, if you don't want to have a hard copy. And yeah, read what we're all apparently meant to do in the event of nuclear war. <laughs> Just good things to memorize. But it's interesting also how similar the advice is to the US materials, not least because lots of British, especially early planning, was based on U.S. testing data. Well, but it's funny, though. I remember I, I wrote a big paper on uh, U.S. responses to nuclear testing events, which included our allies. Early on, during the Manhattan Project, tons of cooperation. We could not, mm. the United States could not have done the Manhattan Project without the active support of scientists in, in, in the U.K. Uh, yeah. But then after the bomb was developed and we started to think about how we would use these things, there was a period of, well, maybe let's not talk to the British, because in, in especially with France, too, there are maybe elements where the, or where the UK and France would could, would be talking to the Russians. There maybe there's mm-hmm. there's there's Labour Party, which you might associate with more leftist leaning groups. So there was a period of not cooperating, and eventually realized yeah. we're going to need to because we need to work together. And then there was and also commercial concerns yeah. of British companies taking nuclear technology and exporting that in competition with American ones. But eventually that all got went away. Yeah, well, the Britain's nuclear program, especially the first couple of decades, I think I count in my my own research, I think 12 or 13 different goals Britain wanted to achieve, but number one uh, was always to uh, reinstate cooperation with the United States. Uh, good, good. Maybe uh, this, hopefully this podcast keeps those ties going. Exactly. Uh, all right, so that's enough of this dark conversation that, <laughs> yeah. we've, that we've dealt with here. Let's play a couple games uh, okay. to, light, to lighten the mood up here. And I know our episode is already going very long, so... Uh, I was surprised but happy to find out that you had prepared a game for this, and I have one too. So what we're going to do is uh, we'll play your game on this episode, and I will take my game and put that on YouTube. So we're starting to, okay. on our YouTube channel, we have uh, kind of extra content. So feel free to go there. There's like extended conversations, discussions, usually uh, pretty short. Uh, so I'll take my game, which is going to talk about protect and serve, and whether or not protect and serve episodes are real ones or ones that I made up. Go on YouTube to check that out. But let's, what do you got for me here for this game? So in the theme of dealing with uh, Britain's nuclear experience and the British nuclear program, uh, I'm going to use a thinly veiled excuse to uh, look at some of the more colorful aspects of Britain's nuclear experience. So uh, I've always been struck by the very logical way in which the United States named its nuclear weapons. So successive designs follow a pattern of the Mark I bomb, the Mark II, the Mark III. Mm-hmm. Very logical, makes lots of sense. Britain had a completely different and kind of crazy system where we use something called rainbow codes. <laughs> so this is based on the idea that Britain realized after World War II that they could sometimes guess what, um, what German research projects were just by their code names, which would somehow give some kind of vague hint as to what they were. So Britain invented a system where everything would get a code name, which would be formed of a, a color followed by a noun. Hmm. So, for example, and the only one I'll tell you for sure is, our first nuclear weapon was called Blue Danube. So, I'm going to quiz you on <laughs> a list of British nuclear projects, and you can tell me if they are real or if they're fake. See, this is, this is going to be tough because I, this is not my expertise, but I take all my other previous guests and I make them run the gamut. So... I'm totally fine uh, dealing with this, and if you if you feel like adding me and attack you know attacking me on, on Twitter, go right ahead because I deserve it. Well, it's, it's, no one really. The British nuclear academic community it's very good, it's very active, but I don't feel like the rest of the world knows enough about 
the British nuclear experience. Yeah. So this is my th way of shoehorning this in. Excellent. Okay. So tell me, real nuclear project or fake? Uh, so we've had Blue Danube. Red snow. Red snow. Ooh. That makes me think of some kind of uh, attack where there's there's blood in the snow, or maybe it reminds me of times where there's like an ice popsicle that has like a like an icy snow globe. Uh, I'm gonna say that one real. That one sounds like a like a combination of real stuff. That one is real. It was uh, a thermonuclear weapon based on the United States W twenty eight warhead. Okay, all right. Red snow. Okay. Watch out for that. One for one. Good. Better than yellow snow, I guess. Well, I was tempted. I thought that would be too too obvious. <laughs> Uh, okay. Red Beard. Red Beard. That sounds, that sounds like a, a great name for a bomb, but I bet that would, those combinations would not come up. What do you, I'm going to say fake on that one. That was a real bomb. Uh, that was the first British tactical nuclear weapon. The Red Beard. 15 to 25 kilotons. I always think it sounds more like a pirate. Yeah. <laughs> so to continue the theme, Red Rum. Red Rum. R -U -M. Hmm. Well, it does sound like murder. This sounds like a... I'm going to say fake on this one. That was fake. That was a racehorse. Okay. Quite a famous racehorse in Britain. But as, as an American audience, I figured oh, I'd have a chance. Oh, it was a... Red Rum was a racehorse in Britain? Okay. <laughs> I think of it as from The Shining. Oh, yeah. The course. little kid running Red Rum. Okay. It went, it went from... I was thinking pretty dark, and it turns out it was a horse. That's good. Okay. Okay, next. Blue Peacock. <laughs> uh, that one's so ridiculous that I'm going to say it's true. It is true, but it is not as true as what the actual project was. So listeners may have heard of, this was a British Army project to develop a nuclear landmine. So don't visualize a small thing you tread on. Visualize something the size of a caravan that would be buried. Hmm. Uh, this may be better known as there was, so there was a realization that if this was buried in Germany, where it gets quite cold, at certain times of the year, it could freeze and the firing mechanism might not work. So it was a suggestion that one way to keep it warm after it was buried would be, before you covered it in earth, would be to fill the, the casing around the physics package with live chickens. Oh, yeah. And with food and water. And I remember their this, body yeah. Heat, their body heat. It never got off the design phase. This, there was no chicken bomb. Um, <laughs> although I have seen a at a museum a um, a model of the casing and what the physics package would look like, and there was definitely room for chickens in there. <laughs> um, but yeah, blue peacock, real thing. Oh, also boy. the chicken bomb. Yeah, I think I think Peter might have been against that one a little <laughs> bit, but oh wow. I remember, I remember reading about that, but I, I, I put that out of my memory because it was so ridiculous. When the public records of that were released, people thought it was an April Fool's joke. They didn't think it was actually a, <laughs> a real project. But, you know, nuclear weapons, absurd things. It's always entertaining. <laughs> okay, next. Green cheese. <laughs> Green cheese. Uh, that sounds like something from a Dr. Seuss book. Green cheese. I'm going to say that one. I have no idea. I'm going to say that one's real. <laughs> Israel. <laughs> what is what is green? What is green cheese? Well, I'm literally just fifty-fifty guessing here. But what is yeah. that? Uh, so that also didn't make it into developed and deployed, but it was a planned uh, anti-ship tactical nuclear missile. Huh. So the Royal Navy had kind of a love-hate thing with 
nuclear weapons. They never really were that enthusiastic about tactical weapons or attack at source, uh, like the NATO striking fleet concept. But at the same time, they had plenty of projects looking at tactical weapons. Uh, so this was uh, one example of one that at least was looked at for a while. Hmm. Okay. Uh, okay. Black Knight. Knight with a K. <laughs> Black Knight. Um, that's a good one, though. Uh, that one's, I would say that one's fake only because, although Red Beard was good, darn, now you really got me going here. I'm going to say that one was fake. That one was fake. Uh, I was hoping you'd think it was from Monty Python. Um, I, no, I, I, that's why I was thinking is because Red Beard, I was, I thought that was fake, but that turned out to be real, but, yeah. oh boy. Yeah, Black Knight. So that, that was a, a test rocket that we developed as part of our ballistic missile program. Oh, that was so another interesting case where... Britain was developing an IRBM that we eventually cancelled, but we had basically developed a working space booster. So there was a moment where Britain was kind of on the cusp of having its own commercial space industry, and we voluntarily decided not to pursue it and just relinquished all that huh. R&D. Uh, never missing a, an opportunity to miss an opportunity, really. Well, you know, if you're surviving a nuclear attack, you would hope that only things are flesh wounds. Quite. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can see a uh, traffic cop just walking up to be someone and be like, I want some food. Like, ah, whatever. It's just a flesh wound. Just a Don't scratch. Worry. <laughs> it's a scratch. Yeah. Okay, next. Violet Club. Violet Club. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to say that one is real. Is real. And so I think it feels very dainty. Yeah. Um, yeah, what, what could that possibly be? It was a, an interim an emergency thermonuclear capability. So this was probably the most dangerous, in terms of its safety considerations, design Britain ever made. The government felt under pressure to demonstrate it was keeping up in the arms race in terms of thermonuclear weapons. But the, the test development hadn't gone as well as planned. Uh, Britain's pro uh, true uh, boosted fission thermonuclear weapon wasn't quite ready. So this was an unboosted pure fission warhead that was put on RAF, certain RAF airfields. The press were invited to have a look at a, quote, megaton range weapon, uh, but it wasn't a proper actual thermonuclear weapon. And then it was never deployed in anger, if you like. It had so many safety concerns, would have been so impractical. It took half an hour to get ready just to be flown on a plane. Okay, um, so only a couple more near that. Um, Blue cat. <laughs> Blue cat. I'm going to keep going on this one. That one's real. That one is real. <laughs> I, I swear to God, I'm just, I'm just kind of guessing here. Maybe our, our elaborate system of preventing spies was not <laughs> as good as we thought. Uh, yeah, that was also known as Tony, and it was based on the United States W44 nuclear depth charge. Okay. Yeah, those depth so, charges always crack me up. That we at one point we had like nuclear mines, depth charges, yep. all these different things in artillery. Nothing beats the, the Davy Crockett, right? Um, in terms of you know runaway military budgets and a pointless weapon. Okay, red streak. Red streak. I'm just gonna keep going. I'm gonna assume all these are real because they they're all they sound real to me. That one is fake. Red uh. streak is better known as The Flash, if anyone is a fan of <laughs> DC Comics. Um, but it was a little bit cheap because we did, we're Britain's IRBM that we never fully developed, but was basically ready, um, was called Blue Streak. Blue so Street. it was okay. a well, deliberate fake out there. There's green cheese. Maybe there's green arrow somewhere <laughs> there too. Okay. 
Um, okay, well, penultimate one, uh, green bamboo. That one's, that's ridiculous. That's fake. That is real. Gosh. Uh, <laughs> warhead that went in uh, actual thermonuclear weapons. Okay. Okay, so uh, last one, blue steel. Blue well, steel. I have I have a calendar of various people doing blue steel. I'm going to say that one's fake. That one is real. No, that's not so, true. It wasn't a warhead, but it was a standoff missile that Britain armed its uh, medium-range bombers with to extend their range and huh. not have to penetrate Soviet air defenses as far. Wow. So, yeah, for decades we deployed uh, blue steel against our enemies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's the Derek Zoolander weapon. Exactly. Uh, oh, boy. Well, Actually, well, you did well there. You got, you got a majority. So, um, I don't know, our elaborate system <laughs> of preventing spies uh, perhaps was not up to snuff in the way we thought. Maybe maybe the NSA is going to uh, hire me now to code break. Well, I assume they're listening. So, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, guys. How's it going? To everything. <laughs> Cool. All right, so I'm going to play my game right now, uh, but, okay. but we're going to jump ahead on the normal episode, so feel free to check out uh, our YouTube channel for this next game here. All right, so that was fun. Uh, let's do our parking lot movie discussion. Now, this is after you watch the movie. Again, this is a TV movie, so pretend you're they're showing this like a special anniversary. You watch the movie in the theater, and you go back out to your car before you go to the tube, and you're having a conversation about... The, the film and what you thought about it. I think there's some ways to talk about this. There's the themes. How does it compare to other films within this genre? Because we had a conversation about what, what kind of genre does this fit into and then whether or not this movie could be made today. So I'm going to let you take the lead on this because you have some great ideas on, on the themes, the overall message that this story tries to tell. Throughout it, it's an attempt at honesty. And I think though the filmmakers, their politics are very clear. I think they're probably in favor of disarmament, either unilateral or multilateral. And I think some of the ways in which they make CND the voice of reason, mm -hmm. and not just, a, they kind of, in the protest scene, they broaden it out, not just about nukes. They also talk about, oh, if you would have jobs if we didn't spend money on weapons and also the environment and clean energy. It's like, this this, this seems strange. So I think their <laughs> politics are, their sympathies at least are quite clear, but I think the film is a very honest look at the issues. Um, I think it's an interesting reflection of the time it's very effective in particular because it uses this docudrama format. It's a bit irregular in terms of when we have narration, when we have on-screen text, but rooting it in, in something that is very credible and having that the through line of characters that we can understand and relate to and follow, I think makes it, for, the, for all the harrowing aspects of the film, and I do think it is one of genuinely the most existentially sad films I've ever seen in my life, yeah. it is also one of the most effective even as you know, someone who who spends all day, every day, reading about nuclear weapons, practically, and you're you're pretty well informed about their effects and everything else, there is a, a power to seeing something dramatized like this that uh, I think has has real value. So, although we probably made this film sound really depressing, I I, I genuinely would urge people to like to seek it out. Uh, maybe maybe watch it in chunks. Maybe uh, intercut it with something a bit more cheery every now and then. Go out, look at the sun. Yeah. Every so often. I think it is it is very well made, especially on the budget and the time that it had. And it has like an enduring legacy, even though we're not in the Cold War and presumably not worried about imminent full strategic exchanges between uh, East and West anymore. 
And there also aren't many British examples, either films set in Britain or British films dealing with these, which I think also gives it another layer of interest. Sure. I think people that would have maybe have seen The Day After or they watch a lot of the, the action mm. movies or the, the ones that Terminator, for example, that's imagery people mm. know, to know it from another perspective. Um, mm. I think, you know, the perspective of an ally who, in this scenario, really doesn't instigate anything, mm. but, they're, but they're still looped into the, uh, the consequences. I think that makes sense. Mm. I would agree with you in terms of the quality of the film. Because I was always wondering, why is it called Threads? If you told someone a movie mm. Threads, you're not going to guess that it's about nuclear weapons. No. It, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it starts on the nose about a spider weaving a web and how delicate that is. Cause, but it's a structure that, we, we, that a spider would rely on to mm. you know, survive. But if you start pulling away from that, and if you start mm. taking that as a, as a metaphor for our own civilizations and how vulnerable they are and the things we think we rely on but can easily go away if something were to happen mm. then it really then it makes sense why it's called that and it's a good overall mm. approach to thinking about this one of the most powerful things that i found with this movie was the idea that for much of the movie nuclear war is not really at the forefront of these people's minds it's on radios they see on tv mm. they read a newspaper but it's background noise that builds slowly while our main characters having the crisis within the, their own lives things like mm. Um, having parents meet each other when kids are going to be married. That's a very mm. relatable and stressful time. Building a house and you know a home together, pulling wallpaper off the wall, dealing with an unplanned pregnancy, trying to deal with a job situation in a, in a recession. Like all of these are real realities, but you have to pick and choose your emotional bandwidth. How yeah. do you, which one do you focus on? Jimmy doesn't even know where Iran is. He describes it as being the Far East and his friend makes fun of him. As yeah. being, that's, that's, it's the Middle East, Far East is, is China. It's just the idea of a peripheral conflict in the nuclear missile age affects everyone and you can be killed by something that is so far away you don't even know where it is on a map. And it reminds me of that. Um, I read a, a story the other week of how uh, when asked to place North Korea on a map, how few people could actually do it. And yet this is an issue with worldwide significance. And I think that there's that authenticity as well of, yeah, most people, as you say, just carrying on with their daily lives. And they're worried about everyday concerns like an unplanned pregnancy in Jimmy's case or, yeah, decorating the flat. Meanwhile, they're being told how to make a fallout shelter. And that juxtaposition, I think, is very effective. So the, the, the writer of this, Barry Hines, had an original ending as he was working on this in an early draft that ended with a much more tamed ending. Civilization somewhat survived, but under mm. the form of an authoritarian government. And it didn't just break down completely. And I obviously at some point they changed that. I'm glad that wasn't the case because I think that mm. that's a different message that it's trying to tell. Yeah, and I think without that kind of ending, I think it genuinely is a film that an anti-nuclear campaigner and a government defense planner could both sit down and yep. watch and largely agree with where they diverge is what to do about these realities of nuclear weapons and the threats that they pose by not having something that you could be perceived in that case as being so anti-government, for example, even if the reality would be a an authoritarian, autocratic wasteland in which yeah. might equals survival. And we do get hints at some of that. Um, I think it's certainly more powerful for having the ending that they choose. I didn't know, I didn't realize there was another one there. Similarly, the director, uh, Mick Jackson, when the movie was eventually on, on television, uh, he says, there is a tradition at the BBC, whenever you make something, the phone starts ringing immediately afterwards and it's your friends and colleagues saying, well done, and so forth. But... <laughs> But threads went out and there was nothing. 
months. I realized afterwards that people just sat there thinking about it and in many cases not sleeping or being able to talk. Mm. So I think you nailed it when you said that this had a little for everybody. It really didn't have someone have an immediate reaction of, well, that's rubbish. That's never going to happen. It makes people think strongly about what it was and whether or not that could take place. Uh, and I think that leads to my second question here. Um, how does this compare to other films and the genre? Because it is this weird mix of a documentary and drama yeah. and, and other elements of thriller and horror, but also there's like romance involved. And it's a fascinating blend of all of these things. I contrasted a little bit to the, the U.S. version uh, of this idea, The Day After, mm. which stars uh, Jason Robarts and a bunch of like Steve Gutenberg and a bunch of famous named actors. So a different approach already from the start. It has some moments of bleakness to it, but it also takes an entirely different approach. You know what kind of movie The Day After is when you watch it. Mm. This one just hits you left and right, changing what you yes. think is about to happen. And not only is it bleak, you, you think you have your balance set because you're like, okay, I know what kind of movie this is. And then it changes mm. the fact that now there's script on the screen and it's text out. Then it goes to a drama. Then it goes to stock footage. It just keeps you disoriented and you never really can understand uh, what that next step is. And I think that's a great blend of these genres. So I don't even know how to place yeah. it. Yeah, and I don't think it takes any specific point too far. So it picks up different genres as it needs to. And, you know, it could be much more horrific, say. It could focus, linger more on the the effects on the human body, say. It's quite effective at using that body horror when it needs to. So in particular, right. the birth scene and showing how you would normally give birth in a hospital surrounded by all the support you could possibly have. Ruth does it, as you say, literally in a manger, having to bite the cord herself. And we and the, that, that last scene is such a gut punch of the... Um, her daughter giving birth as well. The, the, those are horrific uh, that images that do stick with you. But the rest of the film, it, it doesn't linger on that too much in a way that will make it impossible to watch. It makes you just uncomfortable enough yep. that you want to look away, but you you keep watching, um, even if you do occasionally have to go for a walk if, if given the opportunity. Uh, so this, this, is, this is great, because this really um, gets close to my next uh, point here, which is, could this movie be made today? Everything gets remade these days. Uh, I like, for example, when we talked about the special bulletin episode, uh, which was, you know, it's basically it's like a TV news broadcast of a terrorist incident and a nuclear bomb goes off in Charleston, South Carolina. I think that movie is primed for a remake. I think there's mm. enough has changed and it would work well. I don't really know um, if threads could be remade. Is it too bleak? Is it too dark? Could we get the agreement between government and, and anti-nuclear forces to to work together on this? I don't know. I would love to see what your perspective would be. I think the context has so changed that the impetus wouldn't be there in the way that it was. So are, you talking, as, are, you, are you talking about the background crisis or just to what, produce what, it? Uh, the idea of, of a public who is conscious about nuclear issues and has a base level of concern. Um, so, for example, election currently happening in Britain, nuclear weapons are an issue. We just decided to relatively recently renew our, our Trident capability Nuclear weapons are there and controversial again, but even so, I don't think there's this the base level of unease that feeds into threads, and that was probably important, not just in the, the film's effectiveness, but actually getting it made. Hmm. Um, so we're going to invest this money. We're going to be brave enough to make something that's so bleak. Um, I mean, I can imagine Netflix being 
or something like that, being willing to make something that is sad and bleak or um, direct or brave or whatever adjective you want to use. If it were remade today, set today, I think people would, you'd have a hard time developing a crisis that would be seen as credible. Unlike Special Bulletin, where like an, an isolated weapon yeah. is, and you can you, you can still, talk about yeah nuclear terrorism, exactly. people still think about that. Yeah. And I think even if you did make something that was like Threads and had that scenario, go people would without that base level of concern. You'd think, why are you trying to make me so sad? I'm not as concerned. Yeah. That I that I'm prepared to be made to feel these emotions and not feel like I've been manipulated. Whereas I think at the time, reading about the public reaction, film reviews, it's like I said, people just kind of sat in the dark and just thought for a bit. It made people think about the world and their place in it and, and these horrible weapons. You were yep. within range of bombs landing. You can imagine a South Korean version, absolutely. Hmm. And you would probably want to say, well, what are the government's plans to defend me in either conventional or nuclear conflict? And it would have that, that currency. That would be a good a good way to remake this movie would be to North Korea, South Korea... Yeah, and I think there would be international interest in watching that film. Right, I would. Yeah, Even though you wouldn't think the bombs are landing on me, but you would still be interested in a human story about that. All right, well, let's greenlight this. I think that sounds good. <laughs> I'll phone Netflix. <laughs> oh, God. Other streaming services are available. So let's let's do our rating system here, because we like to rate movies here, and we like to keep it consistent so that we can measure it across all the different films that we do. But we also like to tailor the rating system for each film that we watch because you want to make sure you get the most uh, technically accurate description. For this one, and I apologize for being a little gross here, but I, I think the movie uh, requires it, one out of five dinner courses of street rat. <laughs> we see Ruth eating some street rat, and I think one uh, street rat was gross, if you just imagine having one by itself. But if you have five courses of street rat prepared for you, the odds are in your favor that the chef will find some way to make that work. Your plate overfloweth with rat. Exactly. So it's in, in, a, in a world where no one has any food, the man with uh, five rats is, is king. I've seen weirder things turn out okay on Iron Chef. <laughs> so we'll see this. I would say I would rate this one um, four out of five. And I, I like this movie a lot. I, I liked it more on the second viewing than when I watched this years and years ago. Because of the fact that the thematic elements I didn't really pay attention to is more just look how terrible and gross and dark mm. this is. But I've come to appreciate the idea that this is not a movie just about the immediate aftermath of a nuclear war. Mm. And it's you know, its effect on people. And it's not a story of two people trying to fall and find each other. And if they find each other, that's a positive resolution for the end of the film. This is maybe what you think is going to happen. No, it's the breakdown of civilization. What happens when we pull the threads too far? I, I think that's an amazing story to tell and it works out well. The only thing I would keep it from, keeps it from becoming a five out of five street rat, even though the docu-drama genre mixing stuff is good for disorienting, it, multiple times when I watch this film, I think that just, they go a little bit overboard on it. Mm. Uh, and I think that's because when I watch the war game, so many of these style and techniques of filmmaking are from there, and they wanted to do a lot of that stuff again with the bigger budget and the, and the more stylized approach. I think it's just a little bit too too much. Too much of this like text on the screen. There was too many random moments where the narrator would start talking, and it, it just, wasn't consistent. It, it was... wasn't consistent. Yeah, it made the the film a lot more awkward than it, mm. than it could have been, and that's probably a reflection of the way these movies were made in that TV for a TV production 
Mm. And I would recommend this to a lot of people, not wholeheartedly, and, and not when not paired with like some orange, ju- <laughs> some, some orange juice and an open window. <laughs> Don't watch this movie before you go to sleep. That's all I have to say. I did that, and I made yeah. it. I paid for it with some nasty nightmares. What about you, Tim? What do you think about this? Well, I think I, I think I agree with a lot of that. I, I, I did find it kind of frustrating. There wasn't an, an unreliable narrator, but it was dancing around as to when are we getting text, when are we getting a voice. I think any film that uses a, a, a voice narration, that is a tricky thing to get right. Um, there's always a risk of taking you out of the film or or telling rather than showing because you have a the voice of God comes in. But for me, I think this film is profoundly effective at what it's trying to do. I'm amazed looking back at how I think even-handed it is, despite it having right. clear politics. And it's it's accuracy and authenticity, especially on such a small budget, I think is is if I if I didn't know it was a TV film, I would assume it was a smallish budget British production, but for a theatrical release. I think I'd also give it four out of five, but I'm happy to wait a decade between each rewatch um, because I also feel like I have I memorized it the first time. The, the second time watching it back confirmed, yep, I hadn't really forgotten this film very well. But, but again, that's a reflection of, the, I think it did the job it sought to do well. And that's not just to make you think, but also entertain in its own way. I mean, I was gripped and it doesn't forget the human side of things, even though it's doing this big picture breakdown of society. And I don't think that's probably the easiest balance to strike. Good job, filmmakers. Please, please don't make another. <laughs> <laughs> I think you you hit the mark on your first shot, really. All right, so the last thing that we tend to do on these episodes is people that have made it this far in this behemoth of an episode might yeah. be interested in learning more. So I recommend some stuff, and then if you have any things you'd like to add, yeah. uh, please feel free to do that too. So um, I'll start real quickly because we've already kind of talked a little bit about the stuff that I want to recommend. Abel Archer, 83, by Nate Jones. He's someone who works at GW at the National Security Archive. He's an amazing um, scholar that is great at FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Acts requests, where he can get at classified information that's, you know, enough time has passed and get access to these things. And you mentioned about the Abel Archer exercise. It was a NATO exercise that nearly erupted into a nuclear conflict because of misperceptions. And this book is great at telling that story from, from both sides, getting at, you know, U.S. documents, Russian documents, seeing a potential opportunity where this could have easily have escalated uh, further. But it gives you a counterexample, too, of why they de-escalated, what some of the discussions there. So I would recommend checking that out. You also talked very briefly about a cartoon that's another example of, of the British experience with civil defense, uh, which is called When the Wind Blows. I would recommend that. Again, not wholeheartedly for you to watch this uh, but I recommend it as a fascinating story and I have this one we're going to cover this at some point as well uh, I, and I'm probably going to lean pretty heavily on everything you talked to me today about civil defense and their, that experience but this is a cartoon it's about a, an, a somewhat middle-aged elderly couple who follow the guidelines of what the officials tell them to do and it's just a slow cartoon discussion of how they break down and um, ultimately uh, succumb to radiation they're such a sweet old couple as well. I know, they're, 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 they're so lovely. nice. But it's another example. I'd, I'd recommend checking that out if you have any tolerance after this. And finally, um, I recommend, I talked about this on Twitter recently when someone asked for some book recommendations, but Jonathan Shell, the philosopher and a writer that has written a ton of books on all kinds of different subjects, but he wrote a series of books on nuclear weapons and nuclear war. For some people that watch Threads, this was the first movie that they 
they would, they would watch that just gripped them about the reality of, of nuclear war. Uh, when I was in high school, I read these books because of uh, I was a policy debater and I was reading, using them as evidence for why nuclear war was so bad. Like you would need evidence for that. But the theme behind the books are The Living Would Envy the Dead, which I think is a, th a very strong theme within Threads. So I recommend uh, Jonathan Shell, Fate of the Earth, The Abolition, and then finally The Gift of Time, The Case for Abolishing Nuclear Weapons Now. I think those three books, you have some beach reading coming up. Um, feel free and check them out. What do you got, Tim? Uh, yeah, so for books, um, I think the best single volume, if you're interested in the British nuclear experience and specifically the preparations that the British state did for um, fighting and not surviving, but what would follow a nuclear war. And the best single volume is, uh, is as I mentioned earlier, uh, The Secret State by Peter Hennessy. Uh, or Lord Hennessy, as I probably should say. Uh, and he, he's an incredible writer, just um, probably because of his background in journalism as well, as well as being an incredible historian, was really responsible for getting access to a lot of the documents that now form the basis of our knowledge. The book, I think, is originally about 10 years old, but has been updated. Uh, it's just really well written. It is a good read, very detailed, whether you're a historian who's interested in, more, in delving into this or just a casual reader. I think... Uh, there's no better single volume. So I was also going to mention When the Wind Blows as a film. Um, something a little bit more left field is a radio drama called uh, The Letter of Last Resort, which was made for BBC Radio 4. The closest American equivalent would be NPR. This started life as a play, and it follows a, a newly elected prime minister. The first duty of a new prime minister is to write the letters that go on our vanguard submarines, instructing commanders what to do if Britain has been destroyed in a preemptive nuclear attack. Apparently, this is a duty that chills every single prime minister to the bone. They basically have to contemplate the end of the world and what our missile submarines should do after that. So this has been dramatised a couple of times. I think this version started life as a play. The BBC adapted it for radio. There's only two characters. It's a little bit less credible than, in terms of authenticity than Threads. There's... The chief civil servant seems to be quite chippy in the way he talks to the new prime minister in a way that I don't think any senior civil servant would actually be. But it's a good listen. It's only half hour and you can find it on YouTube. And uh, the BBC don't seem to be in a hurry to take it down. <laughs> One last thing just for any British listeners. So if you're interested in some of the things we talked about and you actually want to go and see these things for yourself, a lot of the regional centres of government bunkers have now entered into public hands and a bunch of them are open as museums. So after hmm. I went to see Threads as part of the same course, I went to the one that was near uh, my university in St. Andrews. It's only about nine miles away. Uh, fascinating. It's been restored. It's a massive two-story bunker hidden underneath a farmhouse. You wouldn't know it was there if it wasn't for the signs that are now there. So there's uh, one in Fife called the Secret Nuclear Bunker. If you're in, in Scotland, it's near Edinburgh. I looked online. There's a couple of other ones open around Britain. Uh, there's one in Cheshire called uh, the Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker and uh, one in York uh, just called the, the York Cold War Bunker. So in Yorkshire, same as Sheffield, go visit, uh, go support your local nuclear uh, <laughs> heritage. Uh, but... Uh, it's it is also interesting to actually walk around these places and imagine what the civil servants and everyone else would have actually had to do in this space that was purpose built to try and coordinate the response to a, a nuclear war. That's really cool. Uh, one of my plans this summer is to go to Greenbrier, which is a resort hotel. 
uh, not too far from here in D.C. It's in West Virginia, but uh, it's basically the congressional bunker uh, where members okay. of Congress would go to. And it was secret for a very long time that it was they, they remodeled the basement area and they built this bunker. And it wasn't until the 1990s there was a, a Washington Post report that said, oh, hey, isn't it kind of weird that we've discovered that they're like these giant like black doors <laughs> in the basement of this because people would just hold conferences and workshops yeah. and meetings there. And then, of course, now that people knew about it, they couldn't use it anymore. Uh, so there's a great new book that just came out about it uh, called Raven Rock. Uh-huh. I've seen people talking about it on Twitter. I haven't got around to reading it. That's a cool place. So I'm going to try to go there. It's We're planning a trip at some point, uh, my wife and I, in the fall to uh, potentially London and Paris. And now that I know about all these locations, <laughs> we might have to make a detour. Brilliant. So that'd be fun. Well, thanks very much, Tim, for coming on. I really appreciate this. People can find you on Twitter at War and Cake, all spelled out. Which you will get a normally 50-50, sometimes skewing either way of either nuclear stuff or just stuff I've baked. So <laughs> I try to keep it light. <laughs> that's the combo. Okay. Very cool. I was wondering where that was from. So that's really cool. But yeah, thanks very much. Anything else you want to mention about uh, people can find your research or do you, do you publish or write very much at all? Uh, so I'm currently writing up my, my PhD thesis. So that's kind of occupying quite a bit of my focus but that should hopefully be done in the next few months and i'm going to see what i can produce out of that because i think there's a lot of interesting british nuclear history that should be better known and so if there's one kind of mission of my my phd it's and there are other people working on this as well at different periods that i'm doing uh it's hopefully to publicize a bit of this more and think about what we might actually be able to learn well thank you very much for taking that information and and bringing it onto my humble podcast <laughs> so hopefully people that listen to it can learn more about that and can continue to follow your work. So thanks very much again. That's great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, there are a couple ways to do that. Go on Facebook, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast, Twitter at nuclearpodcast, and email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And I'm Tim Collins. The Tims got together. <laughs> and remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Keep calm and carry on. Super